I remember that I was standing beside my bed holding the telephone handset, staring down at the card table that had replaced the smashed nightstand. I sat down, my mind roaring with thoughts, with speculations, questions, my heart breaking at the message of panic and disappointment that had just been delivered to me from another world. Richard, maybe it was a dream. Wait a second, there's more. This morning when I got up, I raised the shade and there was a neat circle of glass cut out of the top window and laid to one side, like somebody had used a glass cutter. A break, maybe the guitar. No, it didn't hit the window. Anyway, it was a perfect cut except for three missing shards. Maybe it was a prowler. How? In the top of the window? He would have needed a ladder. And anyway, why do it? You couldn't get in from up there. Look, Whitley, this had something to do with you, and I'm telling you right now, I don't want to be involved in it. I'm sorry, I... I don't know what to say. Well, tell them that they got the wrong Streber. That thing scared the hell out of me, and I want no part of it. Did you see it? A face? A dark figure, three feet tall. It looked hooded, and it shot up in the air like a rocket, faster than if it had wings. My breath was literally taken away by the combination of incredible power that the visitors were displaying and the amazing detailed knowledge of my life. They knew my brother? exactly where he lived, knew somehow that he would react just as I had. I had a feeling that it was scared, that I might even have to hurt it. If they'd called me on the phone in my hand, they could not have transmitted a clearer message. What did you do afterward? I laid there, in bed, scared to death. Did you sleep? Not much. And there's another thing. Unlike you, I don't enjoy being terrified. I went back to the Omega Foundation the next morning and told my audience what had happened, and expressed my shame and frustration at being so incapable of dealing with my experiences. What would have happened, I wondered, if I'd just stayed still as the figure approached, or if I'd gone outside during the nine knocks, or down to the meadow on the morning of the three cries? I'd asked for total communion, and had been offered, and look at the mess I'd made. Again, the message delivered through my brother melted my heart and made me feel as if I had fought off a priceless gift. But it could also be a clever trick, a way of disarming me so that I wouldn't be so hard to handle in the future. In fact, the agonizing state of unsureness into which I was plunged was and is at the core of relationship with the visitors. To wrestle with a question like this is a sink-or-swim proposition. Either it is going to destroy you, or... It's going to expand your mind. You cannot turn away, and you cannot pretend it doesn't exist. Noctivigant presents The Summer of Streber. My ghosties, my ghoulies, and my moth people. Welcome to Noctivigant, the show about the strange, paranormal, otherworldly, and the people who write books about it. My name is Rory, and I am joined by the future versions of my co-hosts, Jay and Nick. All of my dreams are in ruins. World is hopeless. That's the future? That's my future. 
I, however, have successfully transformed into a rabbit, so I'm doing pretty well. And on this show, we are going to discuss, dissect, and review the best and worst in the world of paranormal and conspiracy literature. So settle in, buckle up, and prepare for a walk on the midnight roads of Noctivigant. back we are yes and we are in fact in the basement as you always say sir nicholas yeah and we're on our third book of streber uh we are bloodied and bruised but i didn't hear no bell <laughs> yeah i mean you didn't sound dead there at all uh i i only feel it that's good it's not coming out in my voice <laughs> This is uh this this was a lot for one rabbit to absorb yeah. well yeah i mean it was it, i i think uh anytime that you read any uh, series of books by one author, at some point they start to bleed together. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. And when those books are elements of a single story that then uh, repeatedly cross-reference each other and return to previous events to re-examine them, um, the books kind of start to blend together a bit. So yeah. for our readers at home, I would definitely recommend, if you want to follow our footsteps here, uh, take some breaks. Take a, take a palate cleanser between each of these books. Because mainlining them is making me paranoid. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I, 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 I definitely feel, the, especially the blending together, because he references transformation and communion and events that happened during those books, during the writing of those books, afterwards, because of the books. And it is like, it's so hard. To honestly, it's so hard to keep it all together sometimes. Well, and I would say that it's going to get easier from here, but I've already read the next book that we're going to be doing. And let me tell you, um, that one is the one that most heavily references previous works. So, Mr. Joy. Mr. Streber, I have some thoughts. Well, I mean, I, I think part of it is a lot like this book was, you know, this book came out, what, 94? Yeah. Uh, so this was... Part of the reason he keeps going back to those previous events is that he's re-examining them now armed with more knowledge. Right. And uh, the next book we're doing, which is A New World, uh, is one of his most recent books. And he kind of that the point of that book is he takes a big step back and he tries to kind of uh, analyze all of his previous experiences together, like as a total aggregate to try to see if he can arrive at some new conclusions. So kind of like writing a summary, but of three books into one book. Uh, yeah, except it's 12 books. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Streber. <laughs> yeah, so overall, what'd you guys think of number three? Uh, I like number three. I liked it more than Transformation. Uh, I think probably if I had to rank these first three, it'd go Communion, then Breakthrough, then Transformation. But that's partially because, uh, sequel books in a trilogy are always a little boring to me because I know, I know that, you know, there will be more. Now, granted, when the book came out, that wasn't the case, but... Right. Uh, and it's not like this is fiction where, you know, it, you can expect that the story will have a satisfying conclusion. In fact, I would argue that the fact that it doesn't uh, gives it a, at least a couple points in the category of it maybe being real and having happened. Right. Uh, because it doesn't read like a narrative story that a horror author would write. It reads like, this is some fucked up shit I went through. I don't know what to make of it. The end. Yeah, I will say that 
I, I like I agree. Ultimately, like it doesn't have like it doesn't come to any kind of conclusion because uh, that would be madness if it did. Like it it just would be madness. But uh, I I will say, and I'm going to point some of these out. I think that there are some interesting uh, uh, literary choices that that Strieber made. And it, it may have been intentional, it may not have been, but I think it's very interesting that there are some events that happened that absolutely were kind of uh, convenient to some of the thoughts that he was having prior to the, uh, like in the book, prior to that story being told. Yeah, no, I, I definitely noticed that. Um, but no, on the whole, I, I enjoyed the book. As always, uh, Whitley Strieber can turn a great sentence. There were some incredibly beautiful lurid descriptions in this book, uh, which I'm hoping we're going to get into. I have some uh, quotes in front of me that I'm hoping to be able to pull out of my back pocket. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. One one of the things that I will say about him, that at least with this book, more so than I think the previous two, is uh, he went on some side tangents. Oh, yeah. Quite a lot. Like we had, there are several chapters of this book that revolve around a singular event. Yes. You know, and, uh, and yeah, I, I mean that for me, like I, that's fine. Like I was, it was, it was a good read, but it did uh, feel like it was dragging a little bit sometimes because of that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely feel that. I, and again, I think that comes back to, uh, we have been mainlining these books Yeah, and because of that certain elements, which he probably included because, Hey, it's been a decade since my last book. I should probably catch people up on, you know, What's changed? Or I guess it wasn't a decade. It'd be like five years. Uh, six, six or so, yeah. six, I think, between six. Uh, transformation and breakthrough. So I, I could see as an author probably where he felt the compulsion to I should re I should go over some of this again for for readers who say read my book previous books when they came out or yeah. are new to me. Um, in order to make the the events that he the new events he described make sense. Uh, yeah. No. Absolutely. I. I, I see that it's just being from the future. Uh, I I also feel the pain of its existence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way of describing it. Uh, you know, it's very much like um, I don't know. There are plenty of fiction authors who do that with oh, series yeah. where you spend the first uh, chunk of every book recapping everything that happened in the previous books. One of my favorite series of all time, the October Day series. Uh, the first chapter is almost always a recap of what happened in the previous. At least the previous few books, because that one's at what fourteen books now. Uh, yeah, and she's 15? gonna the the fifteenth one looms large on the horizon because it's September, yeah. Yeah, Shauna McGuire for for those unfamiliar with her writes as fast as Brandon Sanderson does and receives a tenth of the recognition. Yeah, I mean she's won awards, but you know, urban fantasy isn't uh is is isn't uh the most popular genre, but highly recommend. So shout out to Sean and McGuire, uh, who definitely doesn't listen to our show, uh, but her books are amazing. Well, and not that he needs it, but I'm she's going to, no, not talking about him, oh. not talking about her, uh, not that he needs it, but just putting it out there. Brandon Sanderson is also good. Don't listen to Jay. Uh. I'm not knocking Brandon Sanderson. Yeah, no, I'm I, just saying. I love, him. I, I love the books of his that I've read too. Yes. Yeah. Brandon Sanderson is a, is a wonderful, wonderful author. Pretty much the only fantasy author that so far I've managed to like 
get, read enough of his work and not get bored by it that I would consider uh, myself a fan of his work. Yeah. Because I think my, that's my issue with a lot of fantasy is I, I get into it and then once I understand the world, there isn't enough left there for me to to hold my attention. It's like, cool world. Uh, your characters are paper thin and I really don't care anymore. Yeah. And then that's the end of it. It's like, once I understand your cosmology, I, you're dead to me. I, I have no use for you left. I, I, have, I have noticed that with you that a lot of fantasy characters just don't work for you. And that's fair because a lot of classic high fantasy authors are like, my characters are here to move from place to place so I can talk well, about cities. Well, also, quite frankly, uh, some authors, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to drag anyone because you know what? They all put their hearts and souls in their books. And yeah. if you love yeah. them, love them. But I noticed there's a trend in fantasy and it might be in other genres, too, where this character is paper thin. And what is their purpose in the narrative? To get fucked. Yeah. Like their only purpose there is to spread their legs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or yeah. be a convenient pole for someone, and yeah. like yeah, and I, I get a little tired of that. Now, granted, I say that knowing full well that my favorite genre, horror, is also often guilty of that. Uh, except for in that, it's to get fucked and then murdered. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess at least then there's an and. So basically, pick your annoying tropes, people. Yeah. Is yeah. every every genre is going to have things that's things that are great and things that are going to piss you off so much you are like why am I reading this? Including but not limited to the paranormal and that is what we are here to talk about today. Thank you. The paranormal we are here to talk about again Breakthrough by Whitley Strieber. So you guys ready? Let's uh, go ahead and dive on in. Yeah, yeah, no, let's do it. All right. For the third installment of the Summer of Strieber we are going to look at the third book in the Communion Trilogy Breakthrough whose whole title is actually Breakthrough, The Next Step. In Chapter 1, Whitley begins by covering the publication and contents of Communion. As we have discussed this book in length, I won't bore you with a refresher, but rather focus on what happened around the time for him personally. Shortly after withdrawing from the public in 1989, the events described in Transformation began, events which proved to him that, at least in part, there is an external physical reality to the visitors. He felt that he needed to assure himself that the visitors were not evil in disguise. So, he sought to better understand their aims and methods. He spent six years seeking these answers, and only accepting them if the event which contained said answer was witnessed by multiple people and was provably non-hallucinatory. No hypnosis-derived memories would be counted. Quote, Given what I have learned under these conditions, I feel that I can say that contact with the visitors is safe, though extremely challenging. I feel that their coming is a call to change. My most accurate speculation about them during my years of public life was probably that they might be what the force of evolution looks like when it applies itself to a conscious mind. Strieber claims that, through the experience described in this book, he got his answers. He learned how they wish to enter our lives, why they are here, and what they regard as important. He saw the long-term changes caused by their influence, and some of his friends even had face-to-face encounters with the visitors. Strieber believes the contact seems engineered to direct us towards our own power, which lays hidden within us. That the visitors seek to change the way we think on a fundamental level. He believes this is happening now because humanity is finally peeking past our mythology and superstitions to see what lays beneath. Furthermore, he believes the visitors can prompt a total re-examination of our spiritual lives, and rather than destroy our religions, 
The truth of their existence in nature would bring new richness to religion and help restore them to their foundations. Whitney believes that the government knows of the visitors, but can't do anything about them as the visitors have chosen to bypass our official structures in favor of direct contact with chosen individuals. But why would they bypass the government? Well, Strieber believes this is because of how they handled the early disc sightings and crashes. When they began to cover it up, the visitors discounted them and moved on to individuals. In fact, he believes the 1952 Washington, D.C. flaps that we covered in our episode on flying saucers over the White House were a direct message to the government. This was them giving the government an opportunity to reverse course and provide a cohesive response to the visits, a test that the government absolutely failed. In Chapter 2, we revisit the knocks that he heard on the cabin wall that were described in Transformation, and how he saw this as the first evidence of a physical reality to the visitors. On January 7, 1988, he was awakened just before dawn. He thought he heard the sound of a distant trumpet. A sense of urgency suddenly seizing him, he got up and, following his senses, went outside. He rushed to the dark woods outside his cabin, and he could vaguely make out a large gray object between the trees. Suddenly, he heard a voice say, He's naked, in a sort of nasty way. Quote, I remember how vulnerable it made me feel, how the goosebumps rose. It is interesting to reflect that if I had literally thrown off my clothes and gone striding down into the meadow, I would have been unclothed, but no longer naked or vulnerable in the way that it was meant. In that sense, my nakedness had to do not with physical nudity, but with the fear. As he approached, a voice whispered to him, urging him closer, all of the words sounding like they came not from the woods, but the center of his head. As he continued forward, he heard a whirring sound that he believed was the visitor's machine. As he approached, his fear grew, and he worried that if he continued, he would never be able to return home. And fear won this round, because he did return to the cabin. As soon as he touched the doorknob, he heard three sharp cries from the direction of the meadow. Quote, those remain the most emotionally alive, most heart-rending sounds I'd ever heard. They were so vibrant with love, with longing, with hurt, that I could hardly express their impact. I have since realized that they were also incredibly rich, far richer than music and richer than the most emotional of our voices. It felt as if some deep, enormous, and lost part of being was calling me from the other side of the woods. This was absolutely real, absolutely physical. If anybody else had been with me, I have no doubt that they would have heard exactly what I did. The cries were precise, rising and falling in perfect unison. It was a startling mixture of mechanical efficiency and deeply emotional outpouring, a combination which is not often found in our world. He feels this incident taught him what was really holding back the contact. The presence of the other consciousness felt like a challenge to his own, it was a fear that his consciousness would be subsumed into the other. Whitley goes on to talk about how he believes that the visitors see the world differently than we do, and that these perceptual differences may be the key barrier making contact so difficult. He wonders if the challenge presented before us is to try and negotiate this and arrive at a new, mutual perception of the universe, which is shared by both parties. On February 27, 1988, 18 months after the knocking incident, but before his story could be publicly known, 
the residents of Glen Rock, Wyoming, were awoken at around 2.45 a.m. by nine knocks in three groupings on the sides of their cars, roofs, on their houses, on their doors. Just about anywhere. This seemed to happen at once all across the town. A UFO was also spotted in the area. Some residents did open their doors, and some reported seeing the shadows of fleeing figures, which their dogs refused to pursue. In November of 1994, Anne opened a letter from Casper, Wyoming. This was while Strieber was writing his book, and, in fact, had just completed his first draft on this chapter. It was from a young man who, while reading Transformation, heard the nine knocks come to his house as well. That night, many other residents in Casper reported a low fog consuming the town, as had also been reported in Glenrock. The local police had received over 15 calls that night about prowlers knocking on people's homes and gates. And as with Glenrock, there was also UFO sightings, reports of children in aluminum suits, and stories of police vehicles refusing to start when the police tried to investigate at all during this incident. In Chapter 3, Streeper talks about his interactions with a reporter from the San Antonio Express News named Ed Conroy. He wanted to investigate Whitley to ensure that he was not, well, a cult leader. Which, you know, fair. Yeah, absolutely fair. I mean, even though he he's missing the cult part. Yeah. But, uh... I mean, he got a lot of letters. Yeah, but, I mean... Yeah, I guess. I just, I don't see how you to make the jump from there to cult leader unless it was, you know, outside of the usual, hey, this kooky guy's doing something we don't like nor understand, so let's call him a cult leader. Maybe maybe Conroy knew about all the people that he takes up to the cabin. You, you also have to keep in mind the time period yeah. that this was happening in and combining, like, the fact that, you know, we were, the, the country was recovering from Heaven's Gate. Uh, Which Jones- was a UFO cult. Yep, exactly. It was recovering from Heaven's Gate. Um, I'm pretty sure Jonestown had happened at this point, and I actually think, I think that by the time Conroy was showing up, uh, they'd had they'd had Waco, so people were people were on edge. Yeah, and I guess to be fair, um, this would have been. I mean, right right around when Whitley was entering the scene, he was entering into. I mean, to, not to relate it to a previous book we covered. Uh, he was entering into the satanic panic. Yeah. And uh, I... Well, this would have been this would have been well inside the satanic panic because this would have been in the in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. No, but my point is, is that uh, we've already seen how easily certain elements, uh, rightly or wrongly, equate the uh, UFO phenomenon to satanic or demonic forces. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. So I, I could... And now that, now that we're talking about it out loud, I, I see the point. But that said, I don't know. I, I still thought I did agree. I thought it was funny. Yeah, I just never. I don't know because I know I do not see Streber that way. Yeah, to be fair though, I don't. The guy who led to Heaven's Gate, I don't remember his name. But Apple White, Apple White, Apple White was a total uh, dweeb, a lot like Streber. So I guess I could see maybe they thought you know evils hiding out in the nerds at their Dungeons and Dragons and progressive values. Oh, actually. I feel like Whitley Strieber wouldn't realize for 18 months he was a cult leader. He'd be like, oh, these nice people have been showing up to the cabin and saying they want to talk to me about the visitors. And then they started killing each other and themselves, and I asked them to leave. And, you then, know, and then there's Woodrow Derenberger, who absolutely would have become a cult leader if they allowed him to. He just had, he failed the temperament test to be a cult I, I just think he just didn't have the um, faculties. 
I don't think he he had the faculties necessary to properly execute a cult. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that man is a pathological liar. <laughs> Strieber, deciding that he had nothing to hide, opened up his life to Conroy. When the knocking incident in Glenrock occurred, Conroy contacted many of the direct witnesses and interviewed them. Many of the details that witnesses gave of this strange mist, the strange lights, the crafts that they saw in the knocks, all aligned with what Strieber had described. He also confirmed that the vast majority of witnesses had not read communion or transformation, nor did they have any great interest in UFOs. Conroy also noted that the knock pattern was used in Masonic initiations and in the opening for Mozart's The Magic Flute. It is a sign of things moving from lower level to a higher. Quote, an initiation to a new level then. Maybe the visitors had also revealed, in tendering their proof, the primary aim of contact. And in January 1995, Strieber met Swal Fenley, a personal trainer from Houston. When he learned of the Knox, he told Strieber that three groups of three were a common concept in Tibetan Buddhism, where it refers to the progress in the past, present, and future time. The Knox, in this light, may be a call for us to ascend. And with that, we're going to move into our first discussion question. So, in the book, he talks about the Knox as some kind of symbolism for an initiation or a call to ascend, as I just said. And weirdly, these knocks have lived rent-free in my brain for weeks now. <laughs> but knocking is also a very common noise that you're going to hear around a house, okay? Especially an old one like the cabin. So, what do you guys think of these? Do you think that these were some kind of message from the visitors, or is Strieber drawing lines where there is nothing to connect them to? Um, so I think the knocks are definitely intrinsically linked to whatever's going on with him overall whatever whatever journey that he is undertaking i the the knocks are definitely a part of it um in order to articulate my thoughts like just for larger context the reason this book in particular was so interesting to me compared to the first two that we read is this was the first time that i had a moment where i stopped reading this book and i went this is a poltergeist Mm. like uh especially that's it it, i'm it it later on we we might talk about the fact that there was that night where the furniture was getting thrown around downstairs while he and Ann were in bed. Right. Yeah. I don't think we actually I don't think I bring that up in the summary, so go ahead. Yeah. Uh yeah, there's just there's there's one night where there's um where uh Ann and Whitley are upstairs and they can hear furniture getting thrown around downstairs. And when they come back down in the morning, I believe it had been physically moved and things mm-hmm. had physically been moved around and upended. And um, the knocks are also obviously a very common poltergeist thing, right down to the, it coming in three groups of three. That's like three knocks. That's, that's a big thing in poltergeist cases. Mm, is the, Okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Um, it's, uh, most of the time when you bring in exorcists for cases like that, they'll say a thing about like, oh, it's mocking the Holy Trinity. I don't, that's that's a Catholic analysis of what that's going on, but that's a very consistent thing in poltergeist and malevolent haunting literature is knocks coming in groups of threes or in three groups of threes. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I think they are, I think this is definitely linked to whatever is going on with him, but... 
it's interesting to me, especially this book in particular, to start analyzing it from the same sort of lens that I analyzed Alma Fielding through of is is there to a certain extent a poltergeist angle at play here? Are some of these things externalizations of what's going on with Whitley internally? And I'm not I'm not like I'm not calling the man crazy. I'm just you know, we've talked before about these experiences might from a certain extent originate from our inner landscape well yeah exactly well, we, we've talked about the idea that what if the visitors are the native denizens of some sort of internal realm yeah and uh i, I actually i like the the idea of poltergeist like you brought up i i didn't think about that um but it it kind of it builds on even he talks about this like it, you know what if it's these guys are are the the visitors are um manifestations of our expectations yeah you know and this could be and that is tangentially in a lot of ways what we talked about in alma fielding with poltergeists yeah of yeah in in alma fielding we were talking about it from the from the angle of like is this an externalization of mental illness is this an externalization of trauma and it's entirely possible that some of these things like the furniture getting thrown around and the knocks outside and even the visit with his brother might have just been psychic externalizations of everything that was Whit- Whitley was going through. I, I, again, it's like he, after he had that scary experience where he threw the table at the, at the little guy coming towards him, then his brother sees something. It's just like, was there a small scared part of Whitley that was like, I need my brother. I need my brother. I need my brother. Yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. That's, that's a good point too. He's like, why, of all the time, of all the timing, why would it just all of a sudden go and bother his brother or yeah. uh, bother some? Like there, there are so many scenarios that that Whitley goes through where it seems like the visitors bother the most random people in his life. Yeah, and yeah, and it's it's, and that again, that feels almost poltergeist like to me is because one of the the mo- one of the most interesting reoccurring things with poltergeists is. Cases that we can categorize as poltergeists in my research are one of the ones where you're most likely to have witnesses that don't live in the house that's being affected. Like, again, with Alma Fielding, with the Perrin house that inspired the first Conjuring movie, a lot of those things is you'll you'll have corroborating evidence of other people coming to the house Mm -hmm. and having shit happen to them. Um, So... Interesting. Yeah, so yeah. that's just an intriguing angle to me that it almost seems like what's going on with Whitley is to a certain extent contagious. Yeah. And well, it's it's funny you use that word because I've been think sitting here thinking about the fact that many people, as remember from Skinwalkers of the Pentagon, many people who had encounters on Skinwalker Ranch later had had through the hitchhiker effect, poltergeist like phenomenon occur in their home. Yeah. So there's actually a part of me also that wonders is. Are we? Is there knocks that also show up in poltergeist cases because it's a poltergeist, or is there knocks because both types of entities are using a shared mechanism? Right. Hmm. And and that's also entirely possible. Of like, um, like you said in the actual question, um, Rory, about like it's something that you just hear in old houses, and you know the idea of like you know it's easier to flick a switch on and off than conjure light with the power of your mind so it's like yeah. like you said nick it's entirely possible that these entities are like hey these pipes are super creaky 
I can get their attention if I think really hard about having a foot again mm-hmm. and picturing kicking this pipe over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, and I mean, also, I, one, one thing that I also remember that's interesting um, is audio analysis of Poltergeist knocks. They they don't, uh, I guess, on the, the sound wave, they don't look like normal knocks usually. Yeah, they're nor- weird. Yeah, because normal knocks, they there's a big spike when the initial knock happens, and then it falls off, showing, you know, as the uh, sound dies off. With Poltergeist knocks, most often it is much more gradual. It builds up to a spike right in the middle of the sound and then coasts back down. Uh, hmm. almost like the sound is coming into the world and then fading back out. Yeah. I would be very interested to see some of those uh, sine waves. I'm sure they're out there. I know we've read about them in a couple books. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, on, on the topic of the Knox, I, I mean, I don't really know. I think some of his analysis is interesting, especially given the fact that uh, later in the book, I, I don't know if this is in your summary or not, the, uh, the alien that takes on the head of a burning eagle. Uh, kind of. Okay, well, at one point, they see an eagle-headed alien. Mm-hmm. And uh, Strieber reads this as symbolism, drawing from, I guess, human mythology of the phoenix or the thunderbird in order to share a message uh, that is deeper than something words could easily convey. And so he has this whole idea that they draw upon our cultural and mythic understandings of images in order to better communicate with us. And uh, I was thinking about the Knox, and yes, he brings up, you know, the, the Trinity, he brings up uh, the various cultures in which those series of nine Knox have a very clear meaning, the ascension process, the approaching process. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking far more simply, though, uh, in our culture, what do Knox mean but come on in? You know, yeah. can I come in? Yeah. And that takes on an interesting dimension when we think about the fact that, again, this might, I might be jumping the gun here. But a little later in the book, uh, it seems to me that he struggles to accept an entity that's trying to enter his life. And by enter his life, it seems like it wants to enter him, not sexually, but almost like not a possession, more like a ride along inside his body. Yeah. And so what if the knock was quite literally it trying to communicate? I want to enter you. Hmm. (laughs) Can I come in? Yeah, no, that's interesting, too. I didn't I didn't think about it like that either. Like I might be going way too simplistic with it because i mean obviously streamer believes it has this larger mythic spiritual dimension yeah but see i have a, i i have a feeling and this isn't like you know uh, no you know no weight to any of this obviously uh-huh but like i i suspect that is actually one of streber's biggest uh faults is that he is looking too wide when sometimes the simplest answer is the answer and it's staring at him right in the face and he can't see it I mean, and I, I empathize with that as an as a fellow overthinker. Yeah, no, and I and I do too, absolutely. But like, funnily enough, like the idea of what does a knock mean? It means can I come in? Is literally like the most basic, simplest idea of a knock, right? And it was like it was the last thing that I thought of. So I can't imagine what, where he was at that time too. You know, he probably did, wasn't thinking like, oh, they're just trying to get into the house. You mm-hmm. know. I, I will say, though, I don't think it was the house settling, just to answer that no, part I, of the question. Truthfully, I don't either. I uh, just, but it, it's also, it was just something that it, I feel like it had to be said. Well, because, like, I've heard pipes making a rhythmic banging in the in the wall, and I would know the difference between that and someone knocking on the wall. Like, they, there is just a different quality to it, and also the location it was. He He went out of his way to say there was no pipes there. There's no place you could stand on the roof that would let you reach that area where the knocking was happening. 
it seemed like the location of the Knox was intentionally chosen to preclude any other possibility. Okay, and then kind of a follow-up, and there's a reason for it, but when we think about the Knox, right? That's mm-hmm. let's say let's say that he's right. Yeah. And that it's that it that it that it is some kind of symbolism with a deeper meaning. How do we what do we think about the Knox when we also bring in the fact of uh things like the these random entities either singing songs or doing other things in the woods, having some kind of weird, ominous yet beautiful sounding things happening in the woods. What together, what do you guys, what, what is that, what are they trying to say? What are they trying to do here? Uh, to me, that just feels like straight up fey shit. Mm. That, that uh, right, you know, we, again, we're talking about is a, the most simple thing that a knock means is can I come in? Uh, we've talked about this off air a few times, the massive overlap between British Isles fairy folklore and Eastern European um, vampire folklore. Mm -hmm. And the idea that in most of those cases, it's kind of agreed upon that like they need permission to come inside and do stuff. Mm -hmm. And then as, as for, you know, the, the singing and the whatever in the woods that just sounds like lost Irish travelers being like, hey, I hear a bonfire over there and then wandering off into the Feylands and never coming back because they followed the voices in the woods. Well, especially because he got the sense when he was approaching the person that was making the, 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 the noises that if he kept going, he wouldn't come back. Yeah. And that, that screamed Fey to me as well. Well, and so kind of something interesting on that point. Uh, I know we've talked about this previously on the show. But one idea that Streber at least heavily alludes to uh, when he's specifically when he's discussing the sightings of the dead around sightings of the others is that, all right, what what if there is another realm? Let's just say one. We don't have to get into the multiverse. Just one other realm, the spirit world, let's call it. Let's say it's where we go when we die. That's the other side of reality. Think of it like a giant coin. We move from one side to the other. Yep. And these entities, whether they come from another planet or they come from that realm, use that realm to move about. So like they would say, go pop into that world and then pop back out somewhere else in our world. So that would allow them to theoretically operate a lot like a ghost passing yeah. through walls. Like we see things like that. Um, and I guess what I wonder is it, what if they are native denizens of that other world and this just theorizing, obviously, but the singing and the chanting and the, the weird uh, a ritualistic behavior we see quite literally are rituals because what if what they're using is not technology but it's it's their form of magic it's them that them chanting that's what they need to do in order to summon a ufo well like what if what we were seeing are the vestiges of their culture just portrayed through this warped funhouse mirror so we'll never really understand it Hmm. interesting very interesting i i that's that's a very that's a very cool way to look at it i didn't think about that you arrive at cool points when you don't sleep and stare at the ceiling waiting for the aliens to arrive. I mean, it's true. We have we have talked several times in the show from for, uh, with, about or with people who claim that via visitor contact they've learned that it's like, I don't know, the visitors didn't develop physical technology. It's all mental. And it's like that mm-hmm. would build directly into the idea of like, well, we don't have a button that we can push. We have to do a little dance like we're a bee. It's like, mm-hmm. can can you imagine? 
I guess I, I, don't, I would be so pissed off if I found out that it's like the last 300 years, we've totally been on the wrong direction. Like physical technology is a dead end, man. You just got to get into the brain. Once you master the brain, you can do everything. And it's like, I'd be so pissed off. I'd be pissed off on behalf of all the scientists. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, that said, I can't deny that, that that might be possible, especially when we look back and we say, again, we go back to Passport to Magonia. Uh, the things that we see the visitors doing are very much in line with the fey folk. Yeah. And that, that's very much in line with other mythology from around the world. The dwarves in Mexico, the little people, a lot of Native American myths. Um, and especially when you factor in the fact that the one type of entity he sees, the kobolds, the little blue dwarves, often enough, in when people encounter them, the little blue dwarves seem to be dancing around yeah. or, or just partying. And, I mean, that seems very fae-like to me. Yeah. As yeah. The, and, again, we go back to uh, where was he going to encounter this thing to challenge his fear of them? He was going to the forest. He was going to the yeah. old cave. He was going to places that are not man-made. Yeah. Uh, he's immersing himself back in the wilds, which, as ancient folklore tells us, that's where the fae live. They live in the wilds. Yeah. Um, not to say, no, and again, not to say that the Fae are just aliens, because I still think they, it could, we could be very likely dealing with a kitchen sink scenario where yeah. there's many, many different things. Um, yeah. but that said, it, it is hard to miss those connections. Yeah, it, it is, especially when it's just a lot of the times if like I, it, and this is, this is not just clarification for the people in the room, but for listeners, any time that I am referencing like an Old Testament story or like a Buddhist tradition or the, the or like fey mythology, I'm never I'm never suggesting that aliens did it or that aliens created it. I'm using it more as almost a literary analysis tool to kind of connect some of these themes and being like, okay, what does this mean to humans? Especially operating again from the theoretical framework of is this psychically generated at least partially from inside us? I think that using longstanding human traditions and and narrative tools like that is incredibly valuable for figuring out what these things mean to the individual experiencing them. Well, mm -hmm. especially because it... All right, let's say, what if we say they are objective, thinking, conscious beings? But And let's say we go with the uh, assumption that they're from the liminal innerscape. They're from that place that the Ascended Masters went to when on their path of ascension, all the way back with Gary Lockman. Now, what would that? What would life look like to an entity who lives, I guess, within the field of con of consciousness, within a completely cognitive sphere? I would imagine uh, there would be they would be much more ambiguous in their nature, in the sense of yes, I am a Fey today tomorrow I'll be a gray right. and the day after that I'll be a werewolf because ultimately I am an idea that lacks a physical form and that lack of physicality may make me more malleable maybe makes allows me to take on uh, whatever forms I wish by simply taking on those ideas because in that space ideas would be a very real thing they'd be something that you could somehow interact with at least maybe <laughs> yeah. um so I, I I could definitely also see that. So, I mean, granted, that goes back to the uh, kind of John Keel, it's all one thing wearing masks direction. But I, I think that the slight difference in this theory would be, or hypothesis would be, that, uh, you know, kind of uh, go back to uh, It, right? Yeah. It, it, chapter two, the thing is restricted to the limitations of its form. Yeah. And that I am a fey, so I can't summon a UFO. I can spin gold from straw 
And tomorrow when I become a gray, I'll be able to summon a UFO. Yeah, so you take on kind of the limitations of the idea, which is why uh, we see, which could be why we see, for example, in this book, them taking on uh, mythological godheads of birds because they're take they're kind of taking these ideas and using them to con- try to convey a message, but the images that they can use are limited to what's in our shared culture. They have to take the things we're already giving them in order to construct their message, which is why communication may be so difficult. At least one of the reasons why. Yeah, or all this is bullshit, and I have just simply taken too many meds. <laughs> There's also something to that, like, in the idea of, like, giving someone clinical therapy, of the idea of you you need to step into somebody else's worldview at least a little bit, at least for a little while, to observe how it has become distorted and to start understanding why are they are, you are giving... They are giving you the responses that they are giving you. So it's entirely possible that part of the reason that the way that these visitors are acting towards him is changing every book is because every year he's a different man and they might have just reached a point where it's like, okay, the the blue dwarf shit isn't helping him anymore. We need to do something else. And Or or they're looking at it and they're like, we tried the blue dwarves and the message we were trying to send didn't get across. So let's go back to the, the book of what we got, you yeah. know? Well, I mean, either that or the dwarves could be seen as a single stage within an initiation in that, all right, you've dealt with the dwarves. Now get ready for the, I don't know, get ready for Alf. He's moving in. <laughs> yeah. Well... You know, and then you know, just kind of bringing it back to the the central idea of of the the question here. It's like with the knocks, and then the the song, the sing song. It's like for me, and I think the biggest reason why I, I, I why it lived rent free in my head was because this isn't the first time that I've encountered something almost exactly like this, right? Or at least wit or, or or saw something almost exactly like this. So in Hellier season. Two episode six, they is the episode where they hear the tones. It's the three tones that they hear during a uh, Estes method session. Right before that happened, they heard knocks. Right, and then at the end of the season, what is what is it that they believe that they're on? Initiation journey. Yeah, so <laughs> very similar events, same conclusion, or at least similar conclusion, and I find that. Now, is there any meaning? Is there anything there? Probably. I I have no idea. Uh, But I think it's interesting that the same conclusions are being drawn from wildly different events with similar happenings. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, it goes back to the infuriating thing about paranormal studies and uh, including UFOs is that uh, when you kind of take a step back, there are so many shared elements that imply connection. And then you end up chasing those lines of connection from one topic to the other pretty much endlessly. It it never arrives at a central truth, uh, which actually, it kind of makes me think that there may actually be more to that idea of these things being thought forms uh, in that... We can never arrive at the truth because the truth is something ultimately that by nature of what they are must exist outside of our ideas Yeah, because they can only present what our ideas are. And until we arrive at that truth, they can't give it to us. Mm. 
well, and like think about it like from from one of our games, like Mage the Awakening, the idea that if you learn too much about how the reality actually works, you don't get to live here anymore. Yeah, you mm-hmm. ascend. To, yeah. yeah. And that's again, same idea when if when Hindu with Hinduism and Buddhism. It's just like when your brain finally gets its hands around what is actually happening here, poof, gone. Time to leave. Is that not the goal for anybody that's seeking enlightenment? Yeah, no that that is that is the goal. But and I, they, they, I think I'd want to be one of those. Like, I always forget the word bodhisattva. I, I want to be a bodhisattva. You know, I, I want to be the guy who gets it and then comes back to try to, to help everyone else. You, you want to be the guy who's already done with the journey. Yeah, I, I, I really, really, I just want to sit up on a rock uh-huh. and let people come to me and share my wisdom and give them terrible advice and then just laugh as they, they fall. Well, I don't know how to tell you this, buddy, but uh, that's that's just not how this works. I guess I don't want to be a bodhisattva. I, what's the word? I want to be a demon. There we go. Uh, I want to be a demon tempting people to darkness. All right, that's a very different thing. They, they are not on the same level, not even a little bit. Okay. But uh, but yeah, I that I, makes me sad. I know I know uh, what you mean about how it, it, it's like this big tangled web, and every time we're hacking away at it to try and find the spider at the center, it's like there's just more web, and maybe maybe the initiation is the realization that you will never understand what the hell is going on here. Oh, and that's entirely possible. I think. Uh... I mean, can you imagine how difficult it would be for us living here in this material reality to really, like, not just intellectually talk about it, but to truly kind of on a soul level understand that everything is ambiguous and nothing, there are no firm boundaries. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Like, if we go back to uh, quantum science, which I know we, we, we hit on a lot here, even though uh, we don't understand it. Not even a but little. I, even at the most basic level, at the, at the smallest units of matter, everything is electrons and protons. It's these free-floating particles. And if you really look at it, that, those make up everything. So the skin that I have, that I kind of see as the border of my body, really isn't because the the particles that are making it up are freely intermingling with the particles that are making up the oxygen and the other gases and the clothes I'm wearing. Yeah. So really, we don't have borders. We are these motes of consciousness within a limitless sea of free-floating particles. And uh, if you could just kind of, kind of take that, that very basic idea and now expand it into this other dimension of thought. In the sense of, uh, yeah, well, the, the reason that you are able to perceive yourself as having a form and you are able to believe you have a border is because you have this untold dimension of consciousness. And that it somehow allows you to, I guess, be a single point. It's like being a single point of drop of water in an ocean being aware of itself. Yeah, no, that, that's a really that's a really good uh like example or description, the single drop of water in the ocean and being aware of it. Fascinating. Yeah, because I don't think it's something that our brains are wired to easily be able to handle. I'm not even sure it's something that we could truly handle, but ultimately, like it, when we talk about things like the uh, universal consciousness or the, you know, the, what, whatever you want to call it, is that not exactly what we're saying? I mean, yeah. Well, especially if you think about the idea that, you know, if consciousness is what differentiates these particles from the particles, the table and the chair, then 
ultimately, I mean, we again go back to consciousness is primary in that consciousness is some other level of reality, and it is the principle by which the particles of this world are organized. Right. And once we get to that point, that is, I think, what people really are getting at when they talk about reality as a hologram. It is that what we see is ultimately a construction. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, scientifically, it absolutely is because we know that there's a bazillion other things happening all around us that we can't perceive. We can only perceive what our brains can filter. Yeah. I mean, uh, the uh, human evolution was built towards survival. And survival doesn't always mean having unrestricted access to all of reality at all times because yeah. that'd be very distracting. I don't need to know, uh, I guess, the which electrons make up this carrot. I need to know if Steve poisoned the carrot so I don't die. Yeah. Yeah. Although I don't know how you'd poison a carrot. This seems like a lot of work. You rub it in arsenic. You grow it in tainted soil. Okay, so I guess it was easy. I'll go fuck myself. We can move on. <laughs> Well, let's do just that. You guys ready to move into the next section? Yeah. Yep. All right. In chapter four, Streber discusses a vision, visit, event, whatever you want to call it, that he had that involved a friend of his named Dora and her daughter. The visitors came in the night, like they do, and instead of just going through the normal motions of scaring Whitley around his house, they decided to take him on a joyride to Boulder, Colorado. Here he witnessed the visitors perform some sort of metaphysical act on Dora's daughter's spine. After the event, he told himself that he would not tell Dora of this experience, but rather observe and see what happens. Around noon the next day, Dora called him. She said that she'd had a dream about Streber and woke up, naturally wanting to call him. So they spoke, but Streber, sticking to his guns, told her nothing of the previous night. He did, however, call her again later in the day because he wanted to discuss the nature of consciousness, like one does. Dora put her daughter on the phone, and she went on to tell Whitley that she was visited by a fairy in the night. In Chapter 5, Strieber talks about the time in 1994 when he gave Dora a copy of the previous chapter and the discussion that followed. While she remembered nothing directly, she did recall that that was a time period which she often woke in the night feeling frightened or anxious. Through this conversation, they learned of odd happenings in and around this event. When Streber went to Boulder for a conference, where he had also introduced Dora to Ed Conroy, whom she eventually married, but the day of that introduction, Ed had heard a voice telling him that he was going to meet the woman that he would, quote, take back home with you. After reading the chapter to Ed, both he and Dora became at once extremely sleepy and sexually charged. <laughs> Mr. Streber? She felt an urge to surrender to the impulse and got the impression that a soul was waiting to be ushered into the world if only she would make love. The second sexiest part of this book. What? <laughs> Don't worry, we'll get there. She said it felt like another tangible presence in the room. And when she asked Ed if he had felt anything odd, he said that he felt like he was being asked to make a baby. Dora couldn't sleep that night and felt fear very similar to the fear that Streber felt with his encounters. Quote, it's the fear of annihilation. That's why it won't go away even when one gets used to the visitors. To be with them feels as if your very reality is being swept away, not because their perceptions are better than ours, but because they are simply so very different. 
This led Strieber to a revelation. Quote, We must find a way to convince our deepest selves that our small world is not going to be crushed out of existence if we allow ourselves to enter their larger one. It is not going to be a matter of simply brushing something aside. This fear is in the blood of man, in every drop of blood on this planet. In the fall of 1998, Strieber was contacted by a director by the name of Drew Cummings, who wanted to make a documentary about Strieber to air on television and correspond with the release of the Communion movie, which he was working on at the time. Thinking this would be a good opportunity to try and get the visitors on camera, he invited the crew and several others to come to the cabin and participate in some planned events. The events that followed wouldn't get any on-camera proof, but would rattle Cummings and give two attendees a close encounter. One of those attendees, Raven, remembers waking up in the middle of the night by what she thought was an animal crawling through the open window. It turned out, however, to be a black-eyed, large-headed gray. Naturally, she was afraid, but she also felt drawn to the creature. It raised its hand as if to ask a question, showing its three long fingers, and, similar to E.T., released six or seven years prior to this, she reached forward and touched its hand with hers. At that moment, a sensation moved through her fingers and down her body, and out where it was touching her leg, like a circuit. Another attendee, Lori, saw a visitor enter her bedroom and casually put her back to sleep. Strieber takes some time in this book to go over the details of some of the 139,914 letters that he has received. Keeping it brief for the sake of time, he found that 80% of the encounters were of a positive or neutral nature, 60% specifically mention fear, 20% report negative encounters, 3% mention hypnosis by UFO researchers, and as a special bonus that surprised me, of all of those letters, only 82 were critical of Strieber and his work, and only three contained direct threats. I do wonder if there was more and Anne and the secretary just quietly threw those into the fire. Uh, it's possible. But we don't know. I, I love that he said in there, it's like, one man wanted a refund because he found communion boring. And <laughs> I gave him that refund. And that's one of the, I laughed. I laughed so hard when I read that. Good for Strieber for doing that. Yeah, I mean, good for him. I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, no, fuck like, no. If someone buys one of the books, if I someday hopefully get a book published, you will. And someone will. buys it and they think it's boring and they want a refund, I'm going to go and buy drugs with the money that they gave me and I'm going to laugh at them. Yeah, fair. It's just, it's deeply funny. It was, I think that was the part of the book that I laughed the hardest at. It was just like one letter, you found communion dull, I gave him his money back. Many letters also came from children. These often reveal that these children often see the visitors as friends or playmates, and that they often understand they need to keep their experiences secret from their families. Many, no numbers given, see the visitors as owls first, and so much more. But Mr. Strieber has gone into more details of all of these letters and the things seen inside it in his book. I think it's called The Communion Letters. Yeah, no, The Communion Letters is basically a curated selection of the letters he was receiving from other contactees. Strieber believes that, based off the letters, rougher encounters like his are often rare. But because those people are more likely to seek help, it gives the false impression to UFO researchers that the abduction experience is decidedly negative. 
These cases greatly troubled Strieber, who struggled to put his own anxieties and fears about the visitors to rest. He needed to know for sure if they had positive intentions or predatory ones. One September night, Andrew had a friend staying the night at the cabin, and plans were made to drive him and his friend to New Jersey to meet with the kid's father the next day. As is becoming the norm for Mr. Strieber, he was awoken in the middle of the night, this time around three, and due to an odd fluttering buzzing sensation in his chest that seemed to affect his breathing. After confirming he was not in fact having a heart attack, he sat up. However, as he moved, he found himself somehow drifting forward as if trapped in a bubble. He found that he was sinking through the floor and into the living room. He saw that there was a man in the room, and then, somehow, he became that man. He found himself crouched beside the bed Andrew's friend was on. Andrew was also awake at this time. The friend was sitting up, and Strieber was talking to him, and unsure of what to do, he stood up, told them goodnight, and went back upstairs. It's a very deeply confusing and honestly kind of troubling little story, but I felt it was important. The next morning, both the boys remembered being visited by a strange man, though neither of them seemed in any way bothered by it. He wondered if his body had been in some kind of quantum superposition, existing in two places at the same time. Later that day, they went to New Jersey as planned to meet with the boy's father. When they hit the state border, the diner that they were meeting at was positioned in such a way that they had to pass it on the freeway before switching back towards it. In Michigan, we call that a Michigan left. I thought the exit was just past the diner. That also could be it. I was just visualizing a Michigan left because I'm in Michigan. Oh, that makes sense. I don't think the visitors could handle a Michigan left. (laughs) (laughs) As expected, they saw the father's truck in the parking lot as they passed by. But as soon as they took the exit, something happened. The shopping malls that had surrounded them suddenly vanished, and they found themselves driving up a ramp Strieber had never seen before. They soon entered a sunken highway with a concrete road and concrete walls on either side. Growing uneasy, he spotted another exit and took it, finding that it led out a place he had never seen before. There were wide, empty streets, and the hazy and overcast clouds had vanished to reveal a very sunny day. All the homes were the same odd, blocky house shape, but with a flat top made of an odd tan stone etched with carvings of serpents. They drove through this odd town till they found another freeway on-ramp, took it, and suddenly found themselves immersed in traffic again. They were now 20 miles away from the diner, having crossed this distance in only just a few minutes. After this, Strieber looked for that off-ramp and the off-little town, but was not able to find it. He asked the boy about a year earlier and found that the kid still remembered the event, and even that he and his father had gone searching for the neighborhood as well and, like Strieber, were unable to find it. Strieber wondered if they had seen a vision of the future. Quote, I was being taught that reality is far larger than we have begun to imagine. The laws of physics accommodate, it would seem, not only the structures we chose to believe, but also other meanings that we haven't even guessed at. We had moved from one world to another. We both saw it. I cannot put it down to imagination. Before it happened, nothing had been said. Nobody had been speculating about anything. The only prelude in our lives had been that odd midnight event the nature of which nobody can remember, 
but which may well have been related. It almost seemed as if what happened during the day was being somehow planned that night, as if the boy was being told what was going to happen by a part of me to which I don't have conscious access. And with this, we're going to move into our second discussion question. So, let's talk about this. He theorizes that he may have somehow saw the future, or maybe, or maybe saw into like a different reality, and while driving with his child and a friend. So, it's kind of a two-parter here. My first question here is, well, what the fuck do you think happened? Okay. okay. And the next is, when this happened... He only asked, or really, it seemed like he was only really asking what happened. But should he have been outraged or angry that the visitors did something like this to his child? He had spent so long trying to avoid Andrew being involved that this happening almost, that this weird event happening without his control, I feel like should have sparked more outrage. Um... So on that second point, the only answer I have to that, because I don't know, uh, but the only answer I have is that often enough anger comes out of fear and he was less fearful now. He, he, I feel like at this stage of his uh, understanding of the others, he had less uh, worries that they were monsters. I mean, he still had some, obviously in this book, he talks about the fear that they're soul eaters of some kind. I, I, uh, don't, I don't actually think that at this point, he was completely over the fear yet, though. Well, he wasn't over it, but I think he was trying to open himself more up. Yeah, but, but he, he was still having the gut reactions, you know, before and then even after this event where he was reacting almost violently when they were uh, when they were around. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. That, that's my guess is that it was just that's more reflective of the stage he's at internally. Uh, what, regarding that other world, though, I have kind of a big kooky uh theory that connects uh, uh several things we've read so far in these books so bear with me here okay so um he now we have that episode where he came into the boys room and he saw them speaking with another man and then somehow he became that man right uh and he taught there's a quote in this book which i've pulled here which is quote could life be divided into levels with different relationships unfolding among the same people and there being little or no conscious contact between the levels so what he's talking about there is an incident of a woman he saw uh, in Dora's house during an abduction event, not an abduction, a visitation event of Dora's daughter, uh, who that woman seemed to only be there to comfort the, the little girl as she grew distressed. Yeah. And that same woman he later learned was her, her one of her uh, school teachers. He believes. Well, he believes. Right. He believes it's one of her school teachers. Yeah, there, the, the, there was no like facial recognition. It was just his belief that it was the same person. Right. So, and then we're talking about, you know, we've been talking about what if they go to this other world, let's call it the spirit world for sake of ease. And that, or that maybe that's where they're from or they use it. But what if, okay, so this is going to kind of go back to what if the female entity is Anne? What if what it is, is that there is a sort of other universe, uh, the spirit world, the other side, whatever you want to call it. And we exist on both sides of it. In the sense of there, we are if we are innately fractal entities in that half of me is here and half of me is over there. So Shadow Nick is over in the shadow biome and that other person is still doing things um, that might be separate for me. But at the same time, they're happening 
with some sort of either subconscious permission or maybe like the soul acts as an overseer of these two different sims I'm playing. Right. And so the the other person who he became was Shadow Side Streber. It was that side of him was doing something. He interrupted it. The waveform collapses and they become one entity. As soon as they're observed, you know, it's kind of like, again, he was he was wondering if maybe he was in some form of quantum superposition. Well, what if? Yeah. What if that's what was happening? He was in both places until the observer effect happened. The waveform collapsed. and Now there's only one of him here. Hmm. Uh, And kind of to add to that, we go back to this uh, vision of this weird neighborhood he saw driving through it. Right. So he saw tan stone and they were covered in serpents. And I'm thinking tan stone, uh, I think sandstone. And that could just be me applying this world's logic to it. I mean, that's what I was thinking of, too. Well, especially because covered in serpents, it, fe- it feels very deserty. Yeah, and what you have to think, like, we can only rationalize what we understand. And if in any way, the lo- like, what we understand about the nature of the world is true, uh, there is very likely sandstone in other realities or other planets, so. Right, and where else have we seen sand in this trilogy? At the weird university in the middle of a desert yeah. that he, he was taken to and he learned at. So what if that is quite literally another world that's overlaid with ours somehow? Like uh, we go back to Dr. Davis's theory about the shadow biomes or parallel realities. Uh, in this case, we're only talking about one, not many. Um, but then I was talking, thinking about, okay, so we have a couple of weird quotes from some of the visitors throughout these books. Uh, one of the blue dwarves told someone once, uh, yes, I'm ugly, but wait till you look like us, my dear. And, uh, yeah. and there's these implications that the others the visitors might have one at one point been us so what if what an alien is uh is ultimately someone who has reconciled themselves with their shadow self and so they're capable of negotiating that boundary so they and what if essentially that is what the ascension process is is bit by bit kind of collecting the fragmented chunks of your fractal self until you're whole again. So really, uh, we're what we're doing here is putting together uh, our unintentional horcruxes. Yes, it's just that it's spread out across an entire multiverse, and ultimately, once you complete the process, you dissolve because you become one with the universal field of consciousness and are no longer a aware part of it. Hmm. Intriguing. It's right. it's very it's very interesting and honestly, I mean, it is it is kind of compelling because, in a lot of ways. Again, we go back to, isn't that what we're ultimately trying to do by seeking enlightenment? I mean, yeah, for anyone who is. And and again, I, I keep coming back to that thought of what capabilities have we seen the visitors in these books portray? They are able to negotiate that boundary very easily. Yeah. So what would it take to get to that point? Could be some technological device. Maybe it's just, hey, we're super psychic so we can do it. Or again, it may be spiritual. Maybe they found a way to... uh do the fusion dance with their shadow self. They came together and now they're an alien. And maybe that's what will happen to us when we die is we'll go over to our shadow self. We'll do a little dance with them and I'll become super Nick. I mean, I hope it doesn't actually involve doing a dance because that would be embarrassing. Dancing is required. No. Oh, you you have watched too much Steven universe. I, I was referencing Dragon Ball Z. For the record, much older than than Steven Universe. I'm, I may have been okay with the dancing, but then you slammed the table. And for the record, Dragon Ball Z totally inve- invented fusing together through dance first. 
Okay. I'm just putting it out there. Okay. And? No, nothing. That's it. My point is done. The end, period. <laughs> um, no, but I, I mean, again, though, I come back he to- He says, continuing. Well, going back to the original point, I could talk about Dragon Ball Z if you'd like. No. No. I don't like Dragon Ball Z. I mean, to be quite honest, I, I don't really like that much of it either anymore, but during my childhood, I was really into it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but again, all I'm doing here, though, is ultimately putting together the pieces he's presented. I don't know how well this theory holds up if we look at it in the context of everything else we've been reading, because, again, everyone is going to bring their own very subjective experience to this. But putting if we were to take uh, Streber's works in a bubble, that seems to me a very compelling explanation for the cosmology that he's presenting. Yeah. No, I don't disagree. So I don't. My first thought, like like with Nick, is uh, I I assumed he was seeing the 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 home, the home wherever of the Greys that he was uh, that he was taken to uh, back in back in Breakthrough, not not Break, back in Transformation. Yes, back in Transformation, the Breakthrough, not Breakthrough, the next step. Mister Streber, I have some thoughts. Um, it's very simple titles. It's easy to remember. Yeah, they're not confusing and convoluted. Well, because you just have to remember the same like four words and then just switch them around <laughs> no! and you got new titles. Uh, but yeah, that was my first thought is, oh, great. He's fucking back here. Gotta leave this kid on the university steps, see what he turns into in 20 years. Uh, but no, they got away. They, they got away from that. Um, as for why he didn't respond with anger... I don't have an explanation for why Whitley didn't respond with anger, but I have a I have a possible tentative proposition uh, in regards to why the phenomenon suddenly chose to involve Andrew and his friend, and it's possible that they didn't mean to. There seems to be this idea that the phenomenon is incapable of making mistakes, and what if that's wrong? Yeah. What if that wasn't supposed to happen, especially if we double back to my me positing the poltergeist angle of if these things are just externalizations of whatever's going on with Whitley internally, it's possible that whatever was going on inside him at certain points just started leaking out and kind of filling the air around him. And it's, it's entirely possible that the visitors didn't do that at all. And they may have been just as baffled as what, as Whitley was if it's like, where the fuck is he right now? Yeah. It's like, he's here. What do you mean he's here? He has two children with him. He can't be here when he has children with him. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, you're right. Uh, we, we tend to imply that just because, that because we don't understand the, the phenomenon that therefore it is uh, all-knowing and all-powerful. If they are past, future, or in any way tangentially related to us, they definitely make mistakes. Also, think about all the times that you're like you're like writing a line of co a bunch of code to make the computer do something, and then it just does something insane that you didn't definitely didn't tell it to do. Oh, it happens. Oh yeah, yeah. it and happens. Computers all the time. Computers run on magic. Working in an IT department has convinced me of that. Yeah, and like we've we've talked before about like what if the phenomenon is like this great algorithmic karmic cycle and it's just input output stimulus response of course it's going to do stupid things that don't make sense sometimes that involve people that aren't supposed to be involved because sometimes 
a, a game crashes your computer so hard it deletes all your save files True. and the devs have no idea why it did that. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens. I mean, if you work in any kind of industry that has technology, then you have experienced uh, in any you've experienced the, the the like an update happen and then it breaks something that it had nothing to do with and the devs are sitting there going fuck I don't know yeah and and again it's like this this possibly could turn into an explanation as to why Whitley didn't react with anger maybe on some level he knew that he was doing that yeah hmm very interesting um you know it's a question though that I had which is not why why was why wasn't Whitley more angry? But I am dying to, to know what the reaction was of the father of that other boy when this story was relayed to him. Because he went with the little boy, supposedly, yeah. to go and look out the neighborhood. Yeah. I would have loved to know what was running through that guy's head. Because I could very easily see him sitting there and be like, Streber, I know you drugged my boy. What'd you do to my boy? And he's just driving around with his son, talking about another reality the whole time he's thinking about the shotgun he has at home. Taking my boy to Albuquerque, New Mexico under false pretenses. Well, especially because, again, we go back to this is mid-satanic panic. Yeah. This is mid your neighbor is, is leading a pedophilic satanic cult. And already there were allegations of... of, of Streber being a cult leader. Yeah. So uh, I could very easily see uh, this turning into a scenario that led to Streber being murdered. And yeah. thankfully that didn't happen. But I, God, I would have loved to be a fly in the wall during that car ride. Yeah. No, that's that's funny. I, 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 I didn't think about like I, I did. I thought it was odd that the other dad was all like, yeah, let's go find it. And, you know, maybe he was uh, maybe he was like into not into, but like more OK with like what Whitley was doing just because he, you know, allowed his kid to go across state lines with him. Yeah. Um, I do remember that there was I, I vaguely remember in the book in that section, Whitley reported that it's like the father went looking for the neighborhood specifically to prove to the boy it wasn't real. Yeah. Um, because uh the impression that I got from Streber relaying that information like second slash third hand is it seemed like the father didn't freak out because maybe that kid has had a hyperactive imagination most of his life and yeah. maybe he sometimes just kind of lightly makes shit up and you have to bring him back to earth is that's the impression i got but like streber kind of said that it's like he he went looking for the neighborhood because he didn't think it was real and he wanted to show andrew's friend that it wasn't so real. i don't remember that being mentioned in the book it, it very likely might have been i just don't remember it but if, if uh i guess in that light now, think about it. What if he did have this overactive imagination? Well, so does Whitley. I mean, he's, yeah. he's an author. Most authors have overactive imaginations. Um, what if that experience wasn't for Whitley? It was for that kid. I mean, it, it very well could be. And then how does that play into uh, the rest of everything that's happened to, to, to Whitley? I have no idea. Yeah, no. I mean, me neither. That's, it's an interesting thought, though. One, um, one also, ascended master begets another. I mean, that's true. It could be that it's somehow continuing some chain of chain of weird experiences to aid in the ascension process. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe, actually, maybe that kid's a bodhisattva, and it was just he was e or or something. He's tapped into something, so he was able to accidentally, because it's not controlled, kind of portal them over. So one thing that's it's interesting, possible. Um, 
This will get mentioned in the next book we're covering, but also it is much more heavily featured in a book that we are not going to be covering as part of the series called The Afterlife Revolution that Whitley Strieber uh, also released. And that book, uh, I'll be talking about it a little bit later, but it it details a series of post-death contact events that he had with Anne after her death in 2015. Spoilers. Uh, it is a very, it's a very touching book. I read it while I was uh, vacationing over in California for a little bit, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, but there, he introduces a concept there, which is interesting, because he, he came to this belief that Anne was an ascended master, basically, that she had come here and forgotten you know, who she was in order to basically play the role she did for Whitley. Huh, in, in trying a, to help him, kind of funny. yeah, help him move along, and get where he is. Because remember, she's the one who named the book Communion. She's mm-hmm. the one who brought up the core message of have joy. She's the one who kind of seemed to steer him away from his worst inclinations about these experiences and towards a more positive or at least productive one. Um, and so he presents her. He calls, you know, he says she leaves, left her body and became a rainbow body. She became this ascended creature. And if we're talking about a bodhisattva begets a bodhisattva, a master begets a master, well, Anne guides Whitley, and now Whitley has this other child that he's bringing on these experiences. I mean, I'm not saying that that's true because this other child, as far as I know, does not come up at all ever again in Whitley's life. But it could be that this experience that was meant to down the road lead to something in his own life that we'll never know about because he doesn't write books. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of what I'm getting at is that this might have just been it's like, oh, Whitley at this point is a walking thin spot. One of the other kids that we one of the other humans that we think might be ready is with him. And especially because this is the same kid where Whitley woke up downstairs. He wasn't sitting next to Andrew Scott. He wasn't talking to Andrew. Right. He was talking to that kid. Right. Right. Actually, that's a that's a good point. Huh. And Interesting. Yeah. So it might have just been like this. This isn't going to be your student, but you are you are in the place where you can grab his hand and lift him onto the first step. And then after that, his journey is his and yours is yours. Kind of like he was like the kickstart. Yep. Interesting. Yep, this, that might have just been like the. Like, this might have just been his first step and he exited Whitley's narrative because he had his own. Yeah. Very interesting. It's like that kid that they introduced in later seasons of Full House till he just went upstairs and vanished forever. You are thinking of Happy Days. Same thing. No. No. Wildly different. (laughs) I'm fairly sure they're the same. Fun fact, uh, my mother has a theory about why they did that with uh, with the older brother on Happy Days. She thinks it was a quiet metaphor for uh, gay children being disowned by their families in the 50s. Wait, so no, I'm thinking of something completely different because this was like an annoying nephew or cousin. Cousin cousin Oliver on the Brady Bunch. That's who you're thinking of. That's what I'm thinking of. Yes. Okay. Glad we solved that mystery. No the fuck idea what's happening with Whitley Strieber, but we know that cousin Oliver was a thing. Okay. Let's move on. Thank you. A year passed with zero contact from the visitors, and Strieber became progressively more miserable. He felt that they were waiting for him to publish another book, but he agonized over that, fearing he was inadvertently helping some evil force. So, he meditated, read to the visitors, spoke to them as if they were in the same room with him, all of this to no avail. So 1990 and 1991 came and went. Strieber was then contacted, 
by government representatives who seemed to be investigating the intelligent apparatus's reaction to Roswell, and as such wanted to know the sources that Strieber had used for his novel Majestic. Nervous about the government attention, he asked the visitors to help him he asked the visitors to help him with this, and received only silence in return. He knew the visitors hadn't left, if for no other reason, the constant influx of communion letters indicated their activity. Quote, Contact was roaring ahead without me. They were trying so hard, and the people they were touching were trying just as hard. What a battle I was witnessing as thousands of human beings struggled with the unknown. Every time I got a letter from a child, I was reminded that the greatest miracle in all of this might well be us. After two long years, something finally happened. He met a man by the name of Michael Talbot. Now, they had known each other through authors' conventions since the 80s. Talbot was a young writer then, and Strieber took a chance on him and asked to read his manuscript. Talbot's book, A Delicate Dependency, worked for Strieber. In fact, he thinks it is one of the best vampire books ever written. They kept in touch and slowly developed a friendship. While Talbot's book was largely a commercial failure, Strieber still saw great potential in him. Talbot had an interest in science and, via experimentation, had convinced himself that our understanding of the universe was exceedingly limited. In fact, he was an earlier supporter of the holographic reality theory, as he believed that physical reality were only ghosts or projections from a richer reality beyond space and time. This idea also introduced the concept that, if our world is a manifestation of consciousness, we should be able to change it. In 1992, Whitley received a disheartening phone call. Michael had been diagnosed with cancer. When Strieber went to see him, the cancer had already ravaged Talbot's body. He had full-blown leukemia at the age of 40, with no known exposure to any radiation or caustic materials that may have triggered it. Michael underwent chemo, and the cancer was put into remission, but everyone knew it would come back, and when it did, it would be terminal. And as expected, it did come back. He went into chemo again in the hopes of enjoying another short remission, during which he did several interviews on his book, which, while successful, was being shunned by mainstream scientists for daring to argue against a materialistic universe. Desperate, Talbot reached out to Strieber and asked him to try and get the visitors to come to him and help with this cancer. And he did. He genuinely tried sitting alone in a dark room, praying, thinking, and pleading to the visitors to help his friend. And about a month later, he got a letter from Talbot. He described waking to a pack of wolves in his bedroom. They leapt upon him, but did not eat him. Instead, he somehow felt that they were eating the tumor inside of him. And he did feel better afterwards, but the tumor didn't vanish. And in fact, got worse. Strieber decided to gather Michael and several others together at the cabin, not to ask the visitors for help any longer, but to maybe help Michael face death. Altogether, 12 people gathered at the cabin that weekend, including Lori Barnes, two friends that were connected in Congress, Raven Dana and her boyfriend, Ed and Dora and their children, and a witness from California who had been cured by her contact experiences. They had a lovely weekend visiting local farms for produce, and they had a feast at night. They played with a Ouija board, which told Talbot that he had been named Lydia in a previous life. One of the government friends who was there was a psychic, 
and Strieber claims that her job was to use remote viewing to find errant submarines. Where's her Netflix series? Right. That night, she and Strieber gave psychic readings to others, and she was very on and had sensed that Talbot was not long for this world. They then went down to Strieber's stone circle in the woods. They had Talbot read to them from the holographic universe, and then they went to bed. Strieber awoke suddenly around 5 a.m., feeling light and tingly. As he was thinking, nay, as he was praying that maybe it was the visitors, he heard a voice downstairs. He thought that it was Michael calling out in need, so Strieber went to him. Halfway down the stairs, Strieber saw Talbot crossing the living room to the double French doors that led outside. Beyond the curtain over the glass, Strieber could see a shadow on the other side. It was thin with a huge head. Then, Strieber heard a voice on the other side of the door, and while he couldn't make out what it said, it was a tone familiar to his own experiences. Strieber approached and watched the interaction. Talbot asked the visitor if she was going to sell the vegetables, at which point Strieber noticed that the visitor was holding a bag of produce. He then realized that Talbot thought he was speaking to a grocer or a beggar. Strieber said, embarrassed, Don't you realize that that could be the creator of mankind? Talbot. She's dead broke. Strieber. (laughs) She can't be dead broke. She owns the world. Talbot. I'll give you $3 for the squash, but I don't have my wallet. The second funniest moment in the book. It is, it is, it is, it is truly hysterical actually when you really think about it for oh yeah I, I i i would really love to have a reaction of meeting the others and trying to buy produce off them right it seems much better than streber's method of screaming and clawing and crying or pulling out his gun no soliciting <laughs> slam the door suddenly talbot jerked towards the door and pressed his face to the glass so hard that it began to crack the visitor also pressed herself to the glass The curtain between them now pulled aside. Then she began to speak to Talbot, but what she said, we'll never know, as this is where Whitley's memory ends. The next thing that he does remember is waking up in his bed. When he woke, Struber went downstairs with the intent to talk to Michael, but he was not awake yet. And when Michael woke, he said that he had had an odd dream that Struber had been in. Struber then stopped Talbot before he could tell him the dream and went to get Laurie Barnes. So Whitley told Lori what had happened and asked for her to come in and listen to Talbot's dream with him. Talbot proceeded to tell them both the same story that Whitley had just told Lori. Talbot laughed it off, choosing to believe that the visitors were projections of the psyche, not physical entities. Yet the curtain on the front door was still pulled aside that morning and fresh streaks were on both sides of the glass. Clearly, something had happened. A month or so later, while meditating at the cabin, Strieber had a vision of an undulating black salamander eating some glowing thread connected to Strieber. He fled the meditation room, slamming the door shut and going to Anne. Whatever it was that he just saw, it felt evil. When he woke up the next day, he turned to go into the meditation room, when he saw great billows of glowing smoke all around him. Out of the center of that smoke came a glowing, etheric hand. Quote, As if it was finding its way along a string, this hand touched my chest, then my own right hand, and for a few moments I grasped its clammy coolness, feeling static crawl along my palm, as if the hand was made of some kind of charged material. 
Suddenly, he heard Talbot's voice, howling, pleading, and confused. He didn't want to go. So Streber consoled him, telling him that there would be deliverance and that the pain wouldn't last forever. Then, their hands separated and the smoke vanished. Streber sank down and wept, knowing deep down that Talbot had just died. He felt at first that Michael must have gone to hell, condemned by some mistake in life. He laid in the hall and sobbed, begging God to spare him, when suddenly he felt an intense peace wash through him. Quote, I saw good and evil as one. I saw angels and demons as different aspects of the same vast compassion, and knew that hell is only what we make it, and that mercy is everywhere, in the air, the heart, the old light that sings through us from babyhood. Streber felt that no prayers for someone's pain or demise were wanted. Love was the principle of the universe, love without qualifications. It is open, present, and living inside every soul. And with this in mind, he thought back with new eyes on Dora's screaming child, his own horrifying experiences, and the suffering in the world that God seems blind to. He saw the meaning of love thine enemy and how light depends on darkness to contrast it. Without evil, good is invisible. This is the gift that Talbot gave him. The following months were spent in turmoil. He began to see that the visitors are our friends because they are also our enemies. The relationship that could exist between them and humanity was beyond good and evil. They were, in essence, telling him that they too were imperfect, and in that, he finally began to figure out why they are really here. They didn't want slaves or genes or souls. If they did, they would have simply just taken what they wanted, as is their power. In July of 1992, he was walking half a mile between his cabin when he spotted what looked like a 12-year-old boy sitting against a tree. He drew closer and realized that the boy was in a tan jumpsuit, had deep-set eyes, and was holding a little silver wand. As he approached, said little boy growled at Streber. Getting the sense that he should leave, he did just that and he ran away. He did not walk. He ran away. Good. Good good instincts. Yeah. The visitors were back, but only for what would feel like a moment. This time they were showing him and other contactees their good and their bad sides. They were giving all of themselves and hoping mankind would give themselves in return. Streber sensed that they had been waiting for us to respond for a long time, but maybe they couldn't wait much longer. So he would go into the woods, and he would go to the Native American burial mound nearby. He would meditate. He would hear thumps on the roof. All of this to come to the conclusion that his conscience was of importance to them. He considered that his guilt and shame over the wrongs that he'd done in life were maybe what was preventing communion. And with this, we're going to move into our third discussion question. Booyah. One of the things that I've noticed is this reoccurring theme of the visitors going in and out of his life. Sometimes after he's had some sort of epiphany, and sometimes seemingly random and for no reason at all. I've also noticed that so many of his visions, his dreams, or his interactions happen only when he is meditating or sleeping. So, does this lend to the idea that maybe this is more in either his or our own minds than it is in reality? Or does this speak more to the state that we are in while we're sleeping and meditating? 
What is the connection between those and the visions and the, even the interactions to the entities? So I think that both parts of, those que- of that question could, could possibly be, to a certain extent, they have the same answer for me, I think. And that is the idea that the soul is kind of, from my perspective, the soul is kind of like a muscle. It can't actually be strenuously worked every single day, day in and day out with this constant workload, or it's just going to, you're going to destroy it. You're not going to make the progress on it that you want to. And I'm going to, I'm going to do my favorite thing and I'm going to fall back on an Eastern tradition that I barely understand and um, try to use one of its, one of its thought exercises to help articulate my, my ideas here. Um, there's a story in Buddhism of, and it's an extended metaphor for like the first stages of enlightenment. Uh, this woman in the village who, for many, many years, believed she did not have a head until one day one of the local Buddhist monks helped her realize that she did have a head. And she spent the next several months uh, constantly going up to everyone in the village and excitedly going, I have a head. And they're like, yes, we know. We've all seen it the entire time. And Basically, this revelation was so huge that for several months, all she could do was sit with that revelation and let it sink in and kind of come to terms with the fact that she had a head. And I, I think that that might be intrinsically linked to the visitors going in and out of Whitley's life of they're like, OK, we got to we got to give this shit to him one piece at a time. He's got to digest it one piece at a time and then when this current piece of information or this current crisis or this current whatever has resolved evolved or changed in some way we can come back and we can start a different phase or facet of the work so almost intentional in the sense of we can only kind of intrude so much because we don't want to break his brain uh, yes, to uh, to steal uh, from a different tradition, this one from the Christians, God never gives us burdens heavier than we can bear. Right. Um, and as for and and I I think that's intrinsically linked to like to the fact that so many of these things come when he's sleeping or when he's meditating, uh, because you you can't replace sleep with meditation right. completely. But you can a little bit. like You can't? No, you can't. Um, well, that explains why my hallucinations are out of control. Yes, buddy. You need to actually sleep at some point. Also, Nick, you have to be able to sit still long enough to meditate for it to work. I've been trying so yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. Nick, chopping up hitchhikers in the garage isn't meditating. We've been over this. Is that what all that blood is? Yeah. It makes me feel connected to my soul, though. Yeah, but that's not meditating. That's... Also, that's their soul, not yours. Oh. Yep. Them souls you've been slurping down. I'm the soul eater. Yeah, buddy, you are. But it's okay. We love you anyway. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I think... I, I think that the meditate... I think that has more to do with this... Even though I believe largely that a lot of these things are self-generated from kind of our inner landscape... I do think it has more to do with being in the correct state of mind to receive these visions, to receive these revelations. And that's not even just me talking about the phenomenon. 
that's again just me drawing from clinical experience of mm -hmm. there are days where someone will come into your office and you're going to have to be able to assess of like oh you can't do therapy today you are in a state where you just you, you are not in the headspace to have therapy and we need to shift to basically a low form of crisis management mm -hmm. so it's it's possible okay. That's yeah. a, okay i see i yeah. see so it's possible that just there's a lot of these things where it's like no he needs to be asleep or in a deep meditative trance because he can't he can't handle this shit when he's wide awake and fully cognizant. So kind of like thinking about spiritual alchemy, how she had to be it for the ultimate healing. She had to be in that trance-like state for yeah. Eight, oh, yeah. eight hours, you know. Well, and I also wonder, okay, to go back to my crackpot theory about Shadow Streamer. Yeah. Um, what if kind of in that state we're closer to that other side? Right. Uh, and I mean, cause you've always, I've, I've read theories like dreams are parallel realities or go doctor. Yeah. That's straight up what Dr. Strange said, but I mean, that's also an older occult idea. Mm -hmm. um, the dreamscape is an occult idea. And so what if, you know, what if we, there are parallel realities and the dreamscape is shared between them. So like the dreams that I have are the dreams that every other Nick that exists in every other part of the universe is having. And that mm. is kind of. That because ultimately they're linked through our shared consciousness, right? Yeah. Interesting. And so, so yeah, I think I think them going in and out of his life of like I I will push back on his personal narrative here, and I'm doing that just again, just as kind of a, a clin clinician and just the way I approach things. I don't think the visitors ever stopped coming because he disappointed them or he failed them. I, I think it was always just this is part of the process. We have to go away for a while. And if they are independent beings that don't come from inside of him, it's entirely possible that it's like, dude, we are spread so thin. We mm. are one team inside to all of New England. And it's like, we, we love you, buddy, but like there's other people here that we occasionally have to go help. It could even be something like that. And it yeah. could be that the, the gap between the time is just because it takes him that long to either get to the next phase that they're ready to come back to or uh, they just kind of give up on waiting. They're like, well, I guess we're going to see if your brain breaks because it's it's been a two years and we got to keep moving. You, yeah. know? you know what's funny is actually when, uh, Rory, when you read that question, the very first thought that popped in my head was, bitch, we're busy. <laughs> um, but uh, They're leaving Streber on red. But I mean, really, I think, Jay, you're, you're probably closest to what's most likely in my mind um, in that it, these things take time. Um, and quite frankly, we see over the course of this book, uh, he does, all, between the events, he does, he spends his whole time thinking about them yeah. Yeah. And, and figuring them out. And I feel like that's a crucial part of the experience that mm -hmm. he's going through. Um, and, and so I feel like, yeah, again, it, it comes back, it would be necessary because if the experience was unrelenting onslaught of experience, you never learn anything. You're just in survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good point. That's that's uh, they're both very good points. And also, just it's like you know, we were talking about at the top of this episode that it's like we read too many of these books in a row, and they're just kind of 
weighing on our brain and almost making it more difficult to analyze because we now cannot compartmentalize what happened when or in what greater context. Oh, yeah. I have uh, completely lost control of my life. I, I would almost, I would honest to God, I would almost say that do not, even though this is a, a series of books, do not read these back to back to back. No, you give yourself time to chew on them. Yeah, because yeah. and it, and I'm not saying that like we weren't able to chew on the whole books because we read them back to back, but it's almost it's overwhelming. Yeah. The it it, it it's overwhelming because it, you almost feel like if you were in the same, in his shoes because of the 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 nonsense that that happens around him, it's like I don't know how he didn't just jump off a cliff. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, and Anne is yeah. how he didn't jump off a cliff. The yeah. ascended master that is his wife. Absolutely. Um, I, well, and I, I will say this, though. I did have one other uh, theory on this, and it is incorrect. Uh, but I was just kind of thinking, you know, I, even though I don't think w what Strieber is describing in terms of the joy and pleasures of communion is sexual, uh, he equates it to sex because that's our closest allegory, right? And so that kind of got me thinking of, what if the reason that it's on again, off again is it's it's kind of a form of courtship? You know, it is, uh, you know, you approach them, you, you do something and then you, you give them space, you give them time to miss you. And then you come back and you, know, you, you drop them a text. Maybe you drop in the middle of the night for a weird uh, booty call where I'm going to touch my wand to your forehead and make you see stuff. And you then know, you say that that may not be that, that you that it's wrong. But you know that it makes it makes it kind of it kind of makes it a, a good deal of sense in its it, own way. It does. It does, however, make the aliens look like the clumsy virgin desperately trying to get in his pants. So you're saying it's more in line with Jay's drunken teenager theories. It. We keep coming back to that, guys. We keep coming back to that. Yeah, yeah just some raged up hormone filled aliens coming down to Earth for the streeb. Well, here's here's <laughs> the thing. He also specifically referred to referred to what they were doing with us as us being wooed us yeah. as in humanity like he yeah. used that word yeah yeah no he did i mean well because i feel like probably he talks so in um afterlife revolution one thing he talks about is that Anne reported to him that upon death uh she says this thing ascension is what happens when there's nothing left of us but love Oh. And 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 like when you are an ascended master, you are of love. That is what you are. Um, and if these beings are either enlightened or seeking enlightenment, uh, you know, it comes up again and again that they have almost a machine nature to them. The way they move, the way they talk, and the, their emotions are different from ours. What if they really can't experience love unless they're fused with us? You know, it's trying to possess him, trying to get inside him to experience life. What if part of that is they cannot ascend without us? They they need to experience the, the elements of reality that us being so limited in what we can take in and what we can understand are able to have that they can't. Because what if at, at a certain point you have an all knowledge, you have knowledge of the universe and the nature of souls and everything. At that point, everything is intellectualized. Hmm. You've lost that element of romance, of surprise, you know. And and so, I mean, what if that is ultimately what they're after here is they are trying to woo us because, yeah, they're trying to, in a weird way, form a cosmic marriage between the species. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and now, weirdly, I'm just thinking of like, I, I, I hate this story, 
it annoys me so much, but I feel like it's an apt metaphor here of that, that stupid thing that people say all the time about it's like, oh, well, pa- Plato believed that all humans were born with two heads and four arms and four legs and Zeus grew jealous of our power and cut us in half and we're eternally looking for other blah, 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 blah. I feel incomplete outside of a relationship and I'm making it your problem on the internet. Um, but I think that, <laughs> um, I feel like that's an apt metaphor for what you were describing of like maybe that stupid thing that people are claiming Plato said when I'm pretty sure he didn't. Um, are you actually people talking about your 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 cosmic gray soulmate that's like the brains of the operation huh. and you're all the raw humany womany stuff? Uh, humany womany <laughs> stuff. I I stole that from There's... one of my professors back in undergrad. Uh so all of this though makes me think of the scene that I've been referencing throughout this episode that is simultaneously the funniest and the sexiest scene in this book. Uh and that is so Streber heads to his bedroom uh, after a couple after a weird sound and he is intent to return to bed when he gets jumped this little thing jumps on him from behind kind of grabs him around the shoulders and pinches on his waist with its thighs and as he's kind of thrashing around screaming for Anne who will not wake up <laughs> he starts to feel this intense uh, charged loved feeling and as this little guy is riding him around like a streber horse we, we get this quote here, uh, quote, my heart started hammering, love, fear, even desire rushed through me. My breath came fast. And at that point, I'm just staring at the book screaming, please, Mr. Streber, don't fuck that alien. <laughs> uh, and thankfully, that didn't happen. The alien poofed away before intercourse could happen. I had the exact same thought. Yeah, I was sitting there, I was sitting there waiting for this to turn into like... So, so fucking, was I, yeah. uh, uh, Intergalactic bodice ripper. I was... I was ready and not ready to hear what a what a Gray's Calacula looks like. Um, but that said, uh, that scene though, when we we take a step back from the obvious hilarity of it, uh, you know, again, that, that I think that does harken back to this idea of wooing. That what if? I mean, yes, we we talk about yeah, they're trying to fuck us and har har har, but we're putting that in a very human context. Mm-hmm. You know, they could be trying to soul fuck us. Yeah, they in a sense of soul fuck. They're gonna try to penetrate our souls, and in doing that, become one. You know, the idea of kind of the spirit world reflection of the 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 act of sex in the physical. I I mean, it's entirely possible that they don't actually understand what sex is. That yeah. they might just be like, "This is how humans become the closest to each other," but it's dangerous and powerful magic because sometimes it makes them insane. Which actually goes back to communion. Uh, when he initially got probed by the female entity yep. who then seemed disappointed that he didn't get an erection. Yeah. It could be that this is what they were trying to work towards. They're like, okay, well, try it how the humans do first, but this seems weird and sticky. And uh, when that didn't work, they started trying to do things their way, but that terrified him. So now they're trying to go somewhere in the middle where they ride him like a horse, but at the same time, fuck with his brain. Do you think that they were trying to imitate him giving Andrew piggyback rides when Andrew was little? Huh. Maybe. Maybe. Like, if they, especially, okay, like, to, to reference another thing, the one of the children from the aerial school said they come here because where they're from, there is no love, and they're trying to learn how we do that. They might not be able to distinguish between the love a man has for his wife and the love a man has for his child. It might look all the same to them, and they're like, okay, 
let's approach this from a different angle. When he was playing with his offspring, he, he also experienced very intense feelings of love. Maybe if we approach him in the form in a form and a manner more similar to when his offspring was very wee and dependent on him, maybe we can make progress there that we haven't been able to before. You know, what's interesting is, okay, so go back and going back to the afterlife revolution book, uh, in that, uh, ascended master, Anne uh, tells Streber that about this concept called objective love. And that's kind of where you go, like what you adopt once you become uh, whatever she is. And objective love is, it's not love of individuals or even love of concepts. It is love of existence, including the evil parts. It is love of everything that is for the simple fact that it is. And that's kind of a state you exist in once you're in a, a rainbow body, as it's put. Interesting. So what if they live in a constant state? What if it's not that they don't have love? It's just they live in a constant state of objective love, but because of that, it's ultimately meaningless. Again, we go back to without evil, good is invisible. So what if what they're here to learn is subjective love? They're trying to figure out what does it mean to love one thing more than other things? Uh, I mean, that to, that would definitely that definitely tracks with the larger narrative that we've been finding here. And part of me sometimes wonders of it's like maybe these guys like like kind of like you said, uh, like was said earlier, maybe they're not actually ascended masters, arbiters of wisdom. Maybe they're also desperately trying to figure out what the fuck is going on here. And like, yeah, that we're supposed to be exchanging ideas and pieces of the larger puzzle. Th that could also explain why they go away for so long, because they are also like, OK, we also just figured out we have a head and we need to go back home and we need to just sit with that and try to figure out what the fuck we just learned. That's a That's actually a really interesting uh, point. I don't think I'd ever considered that they were maybe that they're just trying to figure out uh, our interactions with them just as much as we're trying to figure out that uh, their interactions with us, that, you know, maybe it's just two different realities crashing into each other because of some kind of thin spot, you know? Well, I honestly think that is a core message we could take away from this book specifically is he goes out of his way to make it clear that they're imperfect. Yeah, uh, and also that there's a diversity among them because, of course, there is. If they are, yeah, a, 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 you know, another species, be them from another dimension, a dreamscape, or a planet, uh, there's got to be as much diversity among them as there among us, as there is among us. Whereas in in our science fiction and uh, in our science fiction and our cartoons, we tend to homogenize alien races. They all are one thing. They have one shared culture. They have, you know, they all do things the same way. When you look around on Earth, that's very clearly not going to be the case. Right. At least if they're anything like us. Um, and so, I mean, I could easily see that what we're, we're dealing with here is that some of these encounters are with Ascend Masters and some are with aliens that are as much students as we are. It's like you take two students who are struggling and you put them in a room together in hopes that they'll help each other. Yeah. Interesting. In other words... We are the galactic special ed. <laughs> but we're not alone. I'm not going to name this episode galactic special ed. Damn it! 
<laughs> you were you wanted you wanted them to, didn't you? I I mean I didn't till they said they weren't gonna do it. Yeah. I mean Streber horse. I feel like is a good <laughs> candidate. <laughs> Ride in the Streber horse. No, I do I do like that. I do like Ride that. in the Streb. All right, we ready to move on? Please. <laughs> Once again, the visitors vanished from his life, leaving him to deal with the guilt over the sins of the past that they had just brought to light. All while, in the public, there's been backlash to his writings, accusations again of him being a cult leader, and he believed that he was being observed by government agents. One day, in January of 1993, after having a vision entering the world of the dead, he felt a rush of intense sensations, and the light of those souls washed over him, and he no longer felt the guilt of his sins. That was fast. He realized that he had been his own judge all along, and the visitors merely pointed that out. Quote, Here, the light was alive. The glow around me was composed of conscious being in mass and multitude. And I saw that surrounding Earth is a huge, organic presence that represents the final, superconscious and ecstatic limit of life. This was why we exist. It is where we go when we die, and it contains not just humanity, but an entire mirror of every single thing that has ever been touched by the transformative power of death. In August of 1993, Strieber got a new roommate. After what might be the most awkward introduction known to man, Strieber and a visitor introduced themselves, essentially by their senses, touch, smell, awkward hugs, while he was alone in his room. This little new friend returned every night for the next week. Strieber spent his days reading philosophy in the Bible, managing his crumbling business affairs, and looking forward to these new midnight visitations. Soon enough, both Strieber and Ant started noticing movement around the house during the daytime, including doors opening and shutting. They would find one of the guest beds unmade and the smell of this little goblin lingering in the house, yet they never let them see them directly during the day. For seemingly unknown reasons, the visitor would leave little bits of candy in the basement library. One time, when prompted about what book of Whitley's might be important, the visitor placed three small pieces of candy in front of Life Between Life by Dr. Joel Witten and Joe Fisher, a book about what life may be like for the souls between lives. Whitley did notice that, unless the little man was already in the house, he wouldn't come on nights when the temperature dropped below 20 degrees Fahrenheit. He also seemed to sleep during the day, and always in secret different places. In total, this little squatter from space stayed for six weeks before departing. In February, an old school friend, Oliver Hurd, who was a skeptic to the alien parts of Strieber's life, came to visit. He stayed in the guest room, which was the same room that our little space friend was sometimes staying in. Around midnight, after being disturbed by various little annoyances while trying to settle in for the night, he heard a sound that slowly morphed into a voice saying, It's me. And he knew Strieber, that this was the visitor. Once again, as any human would when encountered with a disembodied voice you'd never heard of say, it's me, he reacted in fear. He ran, got his gun, and was halfway through the house before he realized what was happening. He shouted an apology, but it was too late. So he tried falling into a meditative position, 
to convey how sorry he was, and he begged the visitor to come back. But, unfortunately, he did not. And now, I want to jump into another discussion question. Okay. I need us to talk about this little roommate. So, and what I want us to talk about specifically is, do you think that this was a physical event? Do you think it was real? And why? Why did this little guy come and decide to live with Streber for a few weeks? What was the goal? I mean, I think the goal was the meditations they did. Ultimately, uh, I mean, looking what happened here, Talbot just died. Um, he's having all these visions about, about death, about he's confronting his own sins. Um, and as we've seen, I mean, there, he introduces an idea here in this book, and he, he builds upon it in the afterlife revolution, and in the next book we're going to be covering the new world, that, uh, you know, we, we basically, our souls are immortal. They go up into this outside reality where they become a ta- part of the tapestry of souls, is what he calls it. And, uh, but there, that said, immortality of the soul, which sometimes will also come back, isn't guaranteed. If you do enough darkness, if you do enough horrible things, your soul will fall. And it's very nebulous about what that means. It could be destruction. It could just be degradation. Um, I think that what we may be seeing here is that Streber, in being asked to confront his sins, the, the, the bad things he's done to people, basically learn to live with and accept the bad parts of himself in order to move forward in the ascension process, um, I feel like it was probably just a very dangerous point for him. And so it, it seemed to me that may, they might have sent a tender to keep an eye on him and to work with him and get him through what would probably be one of the more difficult parts of this process being the part where you have to really have a reckoning with yourself and come to grips with everything bad that you've ever done to anyone else. I mean, there's a quote here, uh, quote, like everybody, I'd sometimes wounded people in ways that were never going to heal. The message was clear, live with your sins, taste them, bear them, face what you have done and what you are. That is the direction of freedom. And I, I think that's what the little guy was there for. He was there to make sure Streber didn't go off the rails as he did that, because that's a big ask. I mean, can, God, I'm still haunted by uh, senseless comments I made that were probably hurtful to someone in like the third grade. Uh, so, I mean, being asked to sit down and do a full life review of every time I've said or done something shitty to someone, God, that, that would drive me to the bottle. I mean, I would be I would be pretty messed up after going through that. So it makes sense that he would need this extra help. Um, I don't know why the little I mean, because the little guy is not a gray. It's like a little man. Like a, like I, I was thinking like a man, but the size of like a kid's baby doll. I never really got from his description, like a good visual image of what he looked like to me in my brain, I yeah. guess. No, neither did I. I. I don't think Streber has one. I, I think it's it's too nebulous. I mean, but one thing he does bring up is how light he was. And Streber's theory is actually not that, is that that man didn't have a physical body. He was somehow condensing his spiritual form enough to form a physical body. And so that's maybe why he's so small, because maybe when you're in that, ethereal other state you're you're you know there's much less atoms to work with you're more spread out you're like a fart cloud and what and you need a lot of fart to compress together to form flesh and so you have to be tiny once you're done i mean that that is my uh grade school interpretation of what's going on there but uh 
Yeah, I just think I just think he needed it at that stage. Again, it was I like them leaving and coming back. It's just that was what needed to happen to get him forward. I I had a couple of divergent thoughts here. Um, I, also, I like I haven't direct uh, I've referenced Jenny Tyson in this episode, and I just want to bring up again. It is fascinating to me how many parallels between this book in particular and spiritual alchemy that yeah. I'm starting to see. Like it feels, it feels almost weirdly similar. That was actually my biggest takeaway from this section was in a very similar light to uh, Jenny Tyson's story. Yeah. Because this guy in particular, I was thinking of the homunculi mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah, that her spirit masters were crafting for her, except this one never seemed to go inside him. But again, we're talking about you have to meet people where they're at and address them in the forms that they can comprehend Maybe it's like that just might not have been how this one was operating because it was for Whitley, not for Jenny. And right. the other thing that popped into my head is what if it's Michael? Oh, that's interesting. Um, And part of the reason that I thought I had a couple of different and this is probably just me. This is this is probably just my overactive imagination uh, and my my uh, my literary pareidolia finding patterns where there are none. I like that literary pareidolia. Thank you. Um, but yeah, the idea of it's like Michael had like, like Nick said, Michael had just died. And one of the books that this little guy was drawing his attention to was Life Between Lives. Right. And. Also, the way that he was describing he one of the things that made Whitley the angriest about Michael's death was the fact that Michael wasn't even 40, that he was a kid. And now there's this. I think he was just over 40. Yeah, but yeah just, just still over. very young. And now this this man that is also a child is showing up in his house. And like, again, this is this is me grasping at straws, but just. The, I'm thinking of specifically the scene where he wanted to turn the light on and the little guy was like, no, don't, don't do that. And that Whitley was describing him as sounding like tired and that he just didn't want the light. So much of the way that he was describing this little visitor to me sounded like people who are recovering from very long illnesses or like frail old priests that don't leave the monastery anymore because they're in their 90s and all they can do now is pray and turn pages. And it just, to me, I got the impression of an exhausted soul that had dragged itself back to earth because it needed to do something because it needed to help this this idiot in New York with a couple of specific tasks. And it just, again, like Nick said, it does not feel like a coincidence that this came on the heels of the very traumatic loss of Michael Talbot. Yeah. No, I, I I I agree ultimately with 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 that. I I I I think that this experience specifically was some kind of um I like the comparison to the homunculi because that's almost how I feel like this guy was like sent there as a tool from the visitors to help with the meditations, to help with this that the other thing, to help get through the this this little section of his life to help with dealing with Talbot's death. And that was kind of um, one of the things, or that was the biggest takeaway that I had from this. And I do the same comparison. I, I also had the same reoccurring thought, like 
throughout this whole book, I was reading it like so much of this reminds me of the the story uh, or, the, or reminds me of Jenny Tyson's story, which is interesting to me for, for a couple of reasons. The first being nothing in her story had anything to do with aliens. Yeah. But when we talk to her, what is she interested in now? Aliens. Yeah. Well, it, it's also interesting that when we were talking through Jenny Tyson's book, we kept bringing up that uh, how strongly her experience correlated with things that we read uh, the, like ancient masters went through in uh, yeah. Secret Teachers of the Western World. Right. Uh, I, so I think those, those comparisons or those similarities rather are very interesting to me to show that all to me, that's like the biggest sign that all of this is in some way related. Right. But uh, unrelated to that, but something that I wanted that I thought was interesting and I wanted to point out because I'd brought up at the top of, or I brought up at some point, I think it was at the top of the episode where there were times when he had mentioned something and then later on in the book, one of the stories kind of prompted that, uh, that thought process, right? So I find it odd that he pointed out at the beginning of the book that he believed that we need to act different in order to communicate with them because our, our, the way we perceive the world, the way we act, uh, and the visitors is very different from one another, right? And then... We have this encounter where the way that they greeted each other was through base senses. Yeah. Touch, smell, you know, and they didn't verbally communicate until uh, Strieber went and got his gun. Yep. You know, uh, <laughs> right. A- a- everything else was very animalistic in the way that they communicated. So that to some would probably be like, that that was Whitley kind of living out that idea of having to go down to like baseline animalistic ways of communicating with something that we don't understand. But I also want to point out, and this is just the skeptic in me, that that is also just a very convenient and hard to fathom story to just kind of narrate his own personal thought process. Yeah. I, and I'm not saying that's true, but... It is. It was set up in such a way that it was literally in the opening chapter. He's talking about how we have to think and perceive differently about how we have to wrap our minds around it. And then later on in the latter half of the, the book, we see a story that's doing just that. That's him doing exactly that. You know, I, I, I see your point. I think my my biggest issue there. And again, you could be right. I don't know. Uh, but I think my biggest issue there is that, again, we come back to the elements of, of absurdity in the sense that they don't serve his core narrative. Things like, uh, hey, the little guy was sleeping in my house and every now and then we found the bed unmade or he used candy to point me at the book or. But he also contradicts that that statement. He said he sleeps randomly around the whole uh, around the house, but the bed is left unmade, implying that he's sleeping in the bed. Right. Well, and I, that happens a lot throughout this book oh, where he contradicts himself. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I also think one thing that I, 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 my brain caught on like a loose nail uh, was the fact that when he did smell the guy, he stank. The guy... Well, he said he smelled like a human who didn't bathe. Yeah, he smelled ripe. Uh, and I don't know, like that detail just threw me because it's so... It doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't align with anything else that he's talking about. It doesn't have a later meeting. And it almost doesn't align with the idea of him, that physical form not being an actual physical form, but him just putting his like psychic form into a physical body. Why would, if you could control that, 
why would you make it smell like butthole? And again, again, I think of weirdly that was another element that made me think of it as Michael, just because it gets to a point when you are dying of a horrible, painful sickness. You you stop cleaning yourself because what's the fucking point? Yeah, and that's a good point. But then why some why would the visitors send somebody who is depressed and not taking care of themselves to help guide him through this uh, terrible time? Maybe maybe the little guy was also getting something out of this too that we don't understand. It could True. have been this. This was part of if it was Michael. Maybe this was part of his healing process to get to the point that he wouldn't be destroyed by all of his regrets and burdens and things he'd done. And and I'm not saying that this is something that I that I believe, that I believe that this event didn't happen because of these convenient things that Streber set up. I just, I think it's very important, and sometimes we have a tendency to trail off, not in a believer sense, but in a just kind of take them at their word sense, you know? And I'm not saying that Streber's done anything to make me doubt the story, but I also can't help but notice those things, and I feel like we have to point them out. No, we do. Um, that makes sense. But that was really all that I wanted to say about that. Any last thoughts before we move into the last section? Nope, I am ready for the home stretch. All right. Take us there. In section three of this book, we step away from Streber's narrative and instead focus on the official government responses and what they may or may not know about this situation. He has cited names in cases where the person is dead or made their statements publicly, but many others have their names omitted as they told Streber things under the condition of anonymity. Quote, Over these next few chapters, I would like to try to cast some light on the confusion and horror stories that abound in this experience, and identify those aspects of the negative cloud that surrounds the contact process that has been initially created by people hoping to protect their secret failures by disabling it. Now, Streber believes that proof of contact can't come from the government. It's already here, being experienced all the time by thousands or maybe even millions of people. He believes that we will eventually need to restructure science, governmental, and social institutions, that the media will need to deal in less shock and scare tactics in order to step away from all of this mass denial. He believes that all of this is possible and will become more likely the more contact happens and the more of us that wake up. And as we do, we will come to new ethical understandings of our world and of ourself. Because the secret keepers, dogmatic skeptics, and others working to keep the truth hidden will themselves have experiences that will force them to evaluate what they are doing and the evils that they perpetrate. Streber goes on to dig up stories of a physicist named Paul Benowitz. In the 70s, he, along with abduction researcher Dr. Leo Sprinkle, <laughs> examined a cast of a woman who saw horrifying cattle mutilations during her abduction experience. As he listened to her story, Dr. Benowitz became convinced that she had been implanted with a device by evil aliens to allow them to track and control her. So, he built equipment to try and detect these signals that were sent by the implant. Benowitz was the first to claim that aliens came in little grays and tall blonde varieties, and was one of, if not the source, for the story that the U.S. government has had an alliance with evil aliens, giving them permission to abduct U.S. citizens in exchange for technology. This was then adopted by powerful people like John Lear in the 80s, 
spreading this conspiracy theory far and wide. Lear produced a set of papers allegedly written by an alien operating in a secret ET base beneath a mesa in New Mexico named O.H. Krill. In 1989, Edendora did try to visit the area where the base mentioned in the Lear letter was said to be. They first discovered, by talking with the locals, that next to no UFO investigators had bothered to check the area out and were baffled by the claims of a nearby underground alien base. Through their research, they did find out that there was, however, a large amount of really odd cattle mutilations from 1978 to 1979. After talking with the local Native American tribe, they learned that the creation myth there describes their people emerging from the underground, where they had been created by the supernatural beings who live beneath the earth. Struber believes this indicates that the whole alien base story was basically just a minor mutilation of an existing myth from the area, combined with the actual presence of some cattle mutilations. But the question remains, where did Lear get that document that was quote-unquote, written by this alien. Quote, It took careful research. There is a remarkable design that, to even quite careful scrutiny, yields only more questions. The document further claims something that is consistent with all other horror stories. It suggests that the government is closely aligned to evil aliens who are doing dreadful things to mankind. And this, I suspect, is what is meant to slip in along with the truths and clever mere images of truth that it conveys. Though, it is possible that it's fake. Now, the weirdest shit happens to Mr. Streber. Of this, I have no doubt. In August of 1994, Streber received a letter from Linda Jordan. They had last seen each other over breakfast in 1992, where, explained in the letter, she noticed a man and a woman enter the diner. They took the table just behind the one that she and Strieber were sitting at. The man sat the whole time staring at her, intently, without breaking contact, until he, still staring at her, pulled out a video camera and, still staring, filmed her. The woman was just sitting completely still opposite him throughout this whole encounter. And after this, Linda had, naturally, cut off contact with Whitley. After hearing the description of the man, Strieber believed it matched that of a man that Strieber had met in 1983 named Colonel Russell, who he had met while Strieber was researching extra low frequency. Russell had previously offered Whitley a job in the intelligence world because of this research. When Jordan's sighting happened in 1992, Strieber was just beginning to work with congressional investigators who were exploring if the intelligence service was failing to properly report involvement in UFO research or pursuits. Strieber had been warned that this activity may result in surveillance or attempts to intimidate him. If this was that same man, the colonel, I wonder, Rory, if he had just completely lost his mind, because whatever that lady saw, it was far more likely it was an alien than a man. Or maybe he was a brainwashed man. In September of 1987, Strieber received a letter at his cabin from a stranger, which is odd as he'd tried very hard to keep the location of the cabin out of the public sphere, but the author did include his phone number and Strieber called him. They had a 45-minute chat during which the man spoke with authority and passion about evil greys. Including in it were stories of genetic theft, rapes, and mutilations, all notes that had also been supposedly fed to Benowitz. 
When Streber pushed back, the man didn't want to hear it. He claimed that there was a war to be won and that Streber was on the front line. He said that the visitors were not just aliens, but were from another reality, and that public acceptance of their existence would open the doors far and wide to that reality. That government denial, according to the man, was a tactical move to slow down their arrival and give the U.S. time to prepare to fend off their invasion. Which again, how? Right. Eventually growing angry with Streber, pushing back on all of his wild theories, he hung up the phone. Streber believes the contact experience is so strange, we can't help but mold it into our preconceived ideas of the world, at least at first. When his began, he first forced it into Christian context in which the greys were demons and the blondes were angels. Then he viewed them as a military force from another world, come to conquer, a concept he knew well from Earth history. Then, psychological parasites from another dimension who feed on our belief. Their precise movements once convinced him that they were robots. Then, they became outgrowths from Celtic fairy tales. Quote, It is not that the visitors are chameleons. What changes is not what we see, but how they appear to us. Now this man, the one that Streber was talking to on the phone, turned out to be from the Department of Defense out of Colorado, as Streber found out through a P.I., And when Streber, through the PI, called and confronted about why the DOD was spreading this misinformation, the man hung up, and after several more phone calls over the next couple of days, eventually disconnected the number. Now, when visiting Boulder at a later time, Streber decided to visit the house that this mysterious DOD employee was living. He found it empty, and after talking to the neighbors, found that the man was very private. A few months later, a fire consumed that home and 52 others. In Chapter 18, Streber talks about the picture of the face on Mars, and how NASA, Carl Sagan, and the government tried to debunk and bury it. And if you're not sure what that is, it is actually really interesting, but we just don't have time to get into it, so get the book, or Google it. I actually do have a book on that topic saved uh, for us to do down the line. Well, then just wait. For probably a couple years. Yeah. We have a lot of books on the agenda. Free me? No. Streber talks about some of the military contacts that he has had through the years, largely in thanks to his uncle, Colonel Edward Streber. His uncle had worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which is where, allegedly, the debris from the Roswell crash was supposedly sent. Quote, My uncle informed me that he had knowledge of the Majestic Project. He spoke of the delivery of alien materials, artifacts, and biological remains to the right field from Roswell Army Air Base in the summer of 1947. He felt sure that the existence of these materials and what to do about them had been debated at the highest levels of government. At that time, another officer who had personally handled the biological remains also told me of his experience. He said that the bodies he had observed had a vegetative quality and that the internal organs were unformed. I asked how they could have lived, and he said, We thought they were possibly fakes, but not of this world. Certainly not. When Streber wrote his majestic novel in 1991, his uncle had put him in contact with General Arthur Exxon, whom himself had a longtime interest in UFOs. He seemed to believe that President Truman and Secretary Forstall had been involved in the founding of the cover-up conspiracy. Streber, 
Through these contacts he had built, on his own and from his uncle, eventually worked with a group of government insiders and others that he had met to investigate if the intelligence community was covering up or hiding information it had on potential alien visitors. Quote, Publicly, the United States government knows nothing. Privately, it, or something concealing themselves within it, is extremely nervous. As it now seems apparent that the visitors are real, they have reason to be. By simply making a slow pass over New York City at midday, remaining visible long enough to force the television networks to react, the visitors could completely discredit the whole cover-up. Strebers had contact with many government workers spanning two presidential administrations, all of which told him that there is no public policy which would account for the harassment Strieber had received when he was investigating this issue. His cabin and home had been broken into, and viruses uploaded to his computer. He had been followed and harassed, all because he was looking into alien cover-ups and the lies told to Congress about it. Quote, Although the government possesses, to an extent, the right to lie to protect duly constituted official secrets, there is no secret so great that it can legally be kept from the appropriate congressional committees. And despite all of that, the visitors are still coming, still engaging in one-on-one contact with the public. Strieber sees this as an ongoing process, an emergence which no policy of denial will be able to stop once it reaches critical mass. To Strieber, this culture of denial is geared towards slowing this process down, to slow the communion. On December 2, 1994, Strieber interviewed an unnamed congressional staffer. The staffer believes part of the secrecy has been upheld by the old world spies. The members of the intelligence community who made the initial decision in the 40s and 50s. Back then, the intelligence community was far more underground and did not need congressional oversight. He believes that elements of the intelligence community have continued operating under that original system, believing it their duty to keep the secrets and do the dirty work with no oversight at all. Concluding the book, the overwhelming lesson is that we are our greatest resource, that the visitors are trying to get us to act, to seize our potential and throw off our chains, and that they cannot do it for us. Strieber's fears have fallen away. He now knows that he loves the visitors, deeply and truly, and in that, a renewed love for his fellow man, flaws and all, and even deeper from that, a love for himself. And with that, we're going to move into our final discussion question. So let's talk about all this government stuff. So in a way, parts of this book seem to both say that the Eisenhower theory is bullshit and others that it is something that could be true. Now, we've talked previously about if we believe the government knows more than what they do, but let's talk specifically about this. Do you think that at the highest level, there was a deal made that we, the people of the United States can be taken in exchange for tech or something else, maybe peace. And if it's true, how should we, the people, react to these deep lies? Um, here's the thing. Do I think our government is morally and bureaucratically capable of making such a decision? Absolutely. I don't think they'd even let the Greys get the full sentence out where they'd be like, yep. Take them all from the Ozarks. We don't give a fuck what happens there. And uh, it's just like, or those damn liberals from California. Take them all up in your flying saucers. I, I absolutely believe they would do that. I 
I don't think I have. I, I don't think they have. Um, personally, I just I don't I don't have anything to back that up other than I don't feel in I don't feel in my heart that that has actually happened. Partially just because, especially with with streamers visitors, I don't think they'd comprehend what the government was enough for them to be like, "Hey, let's let's go make a deal with the government so we can take those people whenever they want." I think they'd be like, "Those buildings are for something." Well, and also go back to uh, if we're talking about specifically the visitors that Streber portrays, what technology are they sharing? Because the technology is very ambiguous. It's not doesn't and at times it doesn't even seem like technology. It seems like some sort of natural abilities that they have. Well, he did go on a ship. Yeah, but I don't know. It it just we bring you the onyx reeds frozen in lucite. Blow through this hole and you will see visions of your ancestors. <laughs> it sounds like you're giving me crack. Yeah. It's I mean that uh, I mean you're not wrong. Maybe is this it is crack? crack? I'm gonna smoke it, but the is Lucite it crack? The cube is intact. You may search all of its sides. There are no cracks in it. Wow. Okay, so this is crack. Literal. <laughs> um so I don't I, I think they are capable of that. I don't at the moment I don't have a reason to believe that they've done so. Um, well, one thing to keep in mind, especially about like the Eisenhower theory, is one of the people that was involved with Benowitz, or whatever his name is, uh, came out and said it was all bullshit, that everything that they had said was bullshit. Yeah, it was fed to Benowitz in order to see disinfo into the UFO community. Uh, yeah, and that's that I think is where my 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 instinctive no they didn't do that is coming from just because we we've seen them do this with other communities before of just drop a bunch of weird information and inflammatory shit into certain key groups and just watch the whole place tear itself apart. It it seems much more likely that they're that they're making that up because they want certain people to be deeply afraid of them for whatever reason. Um, and if it turns out they have done that, uh, you guys, I think you guys know what my stance is. Burn it to the ground. Mass execution of everyone involved. Well, I mean, yeah, no, if, if that ever came out that, yeah, no, we cut a deal. They'll let them abduct and do whatever they wanted to you people so we could get sweet technology. I think at that point, like, there is one answer, and that is riot. But like, what if it wasn't for technology, but it was to keep peace? Because I mean, at that point, it's like we're sacrificing the few for the many. Yeah, I think at that point, here's the thing. Um, logically, ethically, intellectually. I understand. I want to see the details. I want to know the numbers. I need more information to make a decision. My dumb monkey brain uh, says, grab rock, hit politician man in head. No, no, I, I'm, I'm on your side. So I really don't yeah. know which one would win out in that scenario. Uh, they, they'd have to have a damn good argument for why they couldn't tell us. They, right. And it would, it would be like, well, okay, and, and you, you don't get to be in power anymore. And no, now, now... Now the Greys negotiate with the entire United States of America. We're going to have the worst Zoom call of all fucking time, and we're going to talk about this society to society. Oh, I'm curious. God, that'd be terrible. What do you think? Where do you think Streber falls on 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 the idea of that the government has had contact and and made deals like this? Because I got mixed, like kind of mixed messages on where he actually stands on it. Because 
you get like with the DOD guy, he pushed back and was saying it was all crazy. But then with the unnamed staffer, he seemed to write it as if he was believing it from that perspective. You know, I, I could see him being unsure himself. I, I think I, I so it's going to me. I'm going to cite uh, Hanlon's razor here in that uh, never attribute to malice what can adequate be adequately explained as stupidity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not calling the government stupid. There are plenty of brilliant people in there. Uh, but what I'm saying, what I think happened, and this is again, this is just my leading, my current theory regarding the government involvement in UFOs, is that right around when this all started up, we had the Roswell crash, the the Trinity crash, these events happening around at the time, the most secure location in the entire country. Uh, where the only bomber wing in existence was that was stopping Stalin from launching a new World War III uh, in the post-World War II years, Mm -hmm. Uh, I could see them looking at the situation, not knowing what to make of it, and saying, okay, until we can handle this, this has to remain secret. And then the issue is, is that they never figured it out. And they're probably still trying to figure it out. So I think it became this situation where we can't tell anyone about this till we have a handle on it. And then because we never got a handle on it, that policy that well, that, uh, I guess, uh, decision over years became policy until eventually it was forgotten that the whole point was to keep the secret till we figured it out. Now it's just hidden away in black budgets and in private industry. And it's ultimately now spun so far out of our control that I don't even think most of the people in government know about it or can do anything about it. Yeah, I think that I I agree. I think that whatever the initial goal for it was has been buried. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think our government cut a deal to have us be abducted. And and honestly, a big part of that comes down to, A, what we were talking about with Benowitz, where we have some people saying, yeah, we fed that guy disinformation, and it drove him crazy, and eventually he killed himself. which is fucking tragic. Yes. Uh, which again, that that kind of gets into topics of UFO immunity and amnesty that are currently very hot right now with disclosure. And I I have issue with that, not because I don't think it's necessary to get some people to step out of the shadows and start talking, uh, but because I think it comes down to degrees. In that, if there is is somewhere in these programs, some guy who's been like, "Yep, I'm the UFO trigger guy. I go and kill people who get too close." Okay, that guy needs to be punished, as do anyone who ordered him to do that. I don't care uh, how necessary it is. Murder needs to be punished. Mm-hmm. We need to put him in a big glass case like he's looking. Uh, but that, that, that aside, I, yeah, I, I, I think ultimately I don't believe they're doing it. And I think the biggest reason I have not to believe that outside of the Benowitz stuff is uh, probably misguided faith in humanity. And that here's the thing. The government is, we, we like to talk about it like it's this monolithic entity. It's not. It is a vastly complex machine involving hundreds of thousands of people with their own conflicting agendas, jobs, policies that are always running in, up against each other. It's why things take so long for anything in government to happen. Uh, it's just so mind-numbingly complex. And I got to imagine the vast majority of people in government, and this is just what I have to hope to believe, right? What I have to believe, or at least hope is true, is that the vast majority of them wake up every morning and go to work genuinely believing they're going to try to make the world a better place. They have their own definition of what a better place is, and those will often run contrary to each other. But I have to believe the majority of them are doing it for what they believe to be the right reasons, and I can't believe that many people 
uh, who would have to be in on the know of this deal for it to be happening, would just look at it and go, yeah, okay, I'm okay with this. Because think about the fact that we're getting technology. Okay, where is it being housed? Who's researching it? Who's figuring out a way to commercialize it? Who's breaking it down to constituent parts? Who's manufacturing our reverse engineered technology? Who's going to handle uh, distributing that out to the private sector? Who's going to handle the marketing for this new technology? There is so many uh, steps that are going to be involved in this and so many people that they, it, there would be a leak at some point. Yeah. Uh, unless the government has some secret enclave of sociopaths that they've just been farming since Abraham Lincoln and they just use them to do all this stuff because they know that they're monsters. But I, I don't buy them. That is, okay, that is, to quote myself from another episode, pure tinfoil hat shit. I, I had another insane theory uh, related specifically to the, to, the, to the bodies that Whitley's uncle was like, we're pretty sure these were fake. What if? And, you know, he was also talking about the intense rivalry between different uh, branches of the armed forces and different intelligence agencies. What if so? What if it's just different branches of the government sowing disinformation to each other it, for various it, reasons? It absolutely could be that, that uh, especially because we know that, like, the CIA, uh, you know, they don't. They lie. They, and they don't play well with others. Uh, and neither do any of the other intelligence agencies. They don't play well with others, and they have their own rules and regulations set up to where they don't have to share information with other agencies because it falls under XYZ classification. Yeah. Which kind of goes back to my core belief that overclassification is one of the biggest issues currently affecting our government. Absolutely. But to, like, the core of the question, like, r real quick, um, I also agree that I don't believe that there is a deal made with the uh with with any of the entities. I do believe that we have far more materials and uh things. I I don't necessarily know if we have biological, but I I do believe that we have at least materials that we have not disclosed publicly. Um and I think that yeah, I guess ultimately I agree with a, a lot of what you get with what you guys what you guys were saying. Um, I I think that those that it, that that if it came out that the, it was true that they've been trading people for tech or even for peace, I would be fucking in an uproar. But I had a lot of other points that I wanted to make about this, and I totally just spaced on what most of them were. So are we ready for the about the author? Sure are. Let's do it. Okay. So uh, when we did communion, the about the author was, of course, about Whitley Strieber's life. And for transformation, I went over some of his fiction work to explore how his experiences may be reflected in his art and vice versa. Uh, today, I want to briefly cover the other books that he's written related to the UFO or paranormal or spiritual topics uh, that we are not going to be able to cover as part of the series. And for listeners at home, these books may represent the next step in exploring the cosmology of communion that Streber has painted over these past three books. So getting into this, uh, obviously there's the, the communion trilogy, which we've now just covered, and A New World, which is going to be coming uh, in two weeks. Beyond that, in 1997, we have the communion letters, which we've mentioned, and this was mostly a, just a collection of some of the best letters he received from other contactees in the years following the release of communion. 
Also in 1997, he released The Secret School, Preparation for Contact. So this book recounts memories that Strieber recovered of a single summer during his childhood when he first encountered the visitors who brought him into a sort of a classroom environment to prepare him for the contact that he would have later in life. In 1998, we got Confirmation, uh, which is considered by some to be the unofficial fourth book in the Communion Trilogy. It takes a step back from his personal experiences and focuses instead on the available evidence of contact. Uh, He analyzes several UFO encounters, contact experiences, and then finally he goes over an analysis of five implants he he saw removed from contactees and goes over some of the data that came about from that investigation. Uh, then we have a big jump up at, up to 2011. He released The Key, A True Encounter. Uh, this is one of the more enigmatic entries in the list. The Key details a bizarre visit Streber received at his hotel room late one night in 1998. A stranger uh, showed up at his door and sat with Streber for hours, sharing wisdom regarding the nature of the universe, consciousness, and details the man couldn't possibly know about Streber's own life. The key, the man says, is the tool we need to break humanity from the trap of violence and self-destruction we have entered. 2013, he released Solving the Communion Enigma, What is to Come, and this book he tries to analyze other anomalous events reported around the world, such as crop circles or animal mutilations, in light of his own experiences, in hopes of maybe coming to some deeper understanding of what is going on out there. Then we come to Miraculous Journey in 2014. And this one, I I included on the list, even though it really doesn't have any paranormal elements to it. Uh, It is basically a love story about him and Anne describing Anne's battle against cerebral hemorrhages, uh, Mm. which nearly killed her in 2004. That was actually an NDE she had. And then he released in 2016, The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, which was co-written with Dr. Jeffrey J. Cripple and explores why the supernatural has remained such a vibrant and living part of our culture and how it represents an authentic aspect of life on Earth. In it, they argue that our concept of supernatural is what is the issue, as for all things, especially the anomalous, they are as natural as we are. It is only our understanding of them which is deficient. All we must do to unlock their secrets is to change the lens through which we view the world, reality, and ourselves. You know, easy thing to do. Uh, I mean, that book sounds really interesting. So maybe in like three years, I'll consider doing it. Uh, 2017, The Afterlife Revolution, which I've touched on quite a bit. A deeply touching book exploring the post-death contact he received from Anne following her death in 2015. Uh, In it, he explores the fractal nature of souls, the broader reality to which we emerge upon death, and the trials we may face if we fail to set down our burdens or inflict harm upon others. And most recently, in 2021, he released Jesus, A New Vision. So in this book, Strieber attempted to rectify his Christian faith with the revelations he's received about the universe from the visitors. Analyzing scripture as well as the available texts about the life and times of Jesus, Strieber argues that rather than the Son of God, Jesus was merely a man who had unlocked the full potential of his soul potential which lays dormant in all of us, waiting to be unlocked so we may too join him in divinity, Uh, which actually I fully expect Jay is going to make us read at some point. It sounds uh, right up there, Allie. Uh, And that's it. That, that those are the other books. I mean, he may release more before, um, before he too becomes a rainbow body, but uh, that's what we got for now. That's what we got for now. So that brings us to, the end of part three of the Summer of Streber. Yes, only one more to go. 
one more. I and I gotta say, like I've enjoyed this ride. I'm ready. I'm yep. ready to get off yep. Mr. Streamer's wild ride. Yep. Nope, I'm right there with you, but let's get into housekeeping. 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 So if you liked what you heard, please like and subscribe on whatever streaming platform that is that you are listening on. And if it is Apple or Spotify, please leave us a review because it it really does help us in the algorithms. Like, I don't care if you just write good tacos or something bullshit like that. Yeah, no, we'll take it because we're like, as far as I can tell, we are so close to actually getting our reviews showing on Spotify. We just need more. So please give us some more. But you can also shoot us an email if you heard anything that you want to scream at us about, or if you have a book suggestion, or I don't know, want to tell us one of your cool stories. Go ahead, shoot us an email, noctivigantpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on our social medias on Twitter. We are at noctivigantpod. And I am at Mix Rory Wicks. I am at Bearish Terror. I'm at Midwest Undead. And then we have a plethora of other social medias, all Noctivigan Podcast. We have a Instagram. We have a Tumblr, Noctivigan Podcast. There is still a Reddit. Noctivigan Podcast. And I I think that's it. I think that's it. YouTube channel coming soon. YouTube channel coming soon. We are not getting a TikTok. I mean, I have my own TikTok that you can follow me on. Uh, Mix Rory Wicks. I make videos every now and again. We are going to be releasing a TikTok called The Sexy Gray, in which we reenact several scenes from Whitley Streamer's life, in which I put on the mask of a gray and randomly leap onto Rory's back. And then you, the listeners at home, will get to witness uh, the face Rory makes as both of their kneecaps shatter instantly <laughs> and they <laughs> fall on the ground screaming and wailing. I mean, immediate. Immediate knees breaking. Of yes. all the things you could go to prison for, you really want it to be that one? How am I going to go to prison? I'm wearing a mask. Oh, my God. Oh, and uh, just one more thing. Coming up in just over a week on July 21st at 8 p.m. is going to be the first ever Noctivian live stream. And we've got some really cool stuff in store for you on that, so make sure that you're there. I'll drop a link to our youtube channel uh in the episode description because that is where we will be live streaming from but we've got some cool stuff that we want to talk about all about the future state of the show and then since it's on our anniversary we're going to talk about all the books that we've covered in the last year and we've just got some fun stuff that we want to go over but i think i think that's it so are we done yeah i think we're done okay we're done lead us out of here rory Well then, good night ghosties, good night ghoulies, good night moth people. Stay safe out there. Get lost. Don't do that. Don't listen to the bear when it's telling you to wander off the path. Objectively, I'm being the fun parent here, so you should listen to me. He's not being the fun parent. He's being a bear.
it's not fun unless you make it fun. So make it fun if you do get lost. Goodbye.